We hear this cliche all the time that life is short, right? We always say life is short. I don't actually believe that life is short, or at least I don't think we actually believe it. I mean, whether life is long or short, I guess just depends on what you compare it to. You know, if you compare it to a giant redwood, it's short, but if you compare it to like a fly, it's long, whatever it is. But what do we believe? And I think most people, to include myself at times, we believe life is long. It's actually so long, in fact, that we put off these things, right? We always want to take piano lessons, but we'll do it next year when my life isn't as busy. You know, we do all these different things. I'm going to patch things up with my mom or my dad. I haven't talked to in a while. I'll, I'll do it next week. I'll make the call next week, next month, whatever it is. And we put things off because we honestly believe we have more time. And the reality is, is that that is exactly what keeps us from doing these things is that we always think we've got more time. So if I'm talking about at the most basic level, when we start to attempt these things, we should honestly have a deep-seated belief that life is finite, it's short and it's fleeting, in which case we will start to act now. We need to start by how we think about time and how we think about how we spend our time because as we all know, weeks become months, become years, and all of a sudden, that's how we spend our lives. And I'm fearful that I'm not gonna be able to get these things done because I'm running out of time. and. That helps me, you know, and I hope that helps other people as well. The Rich Roll Podcast. What is happening, population of Podcastlandia? Today's guest is a beautiful beast of a human, an extraordinary adventure athlete who goes by the name Jason Caldwell, and also happens to hold about a dozen world records set across five continents, including a 320 mile unassisted traverse of the Namib Desert, the longest desert trek across Namibia. He's also captained the fastest team to row across the Atlantic unsupported. And most recently he achieved victory in the great Pacific race, which was an event in which he captained the fastest team to ever row the Pacific from San Francisco to Hawaii, a feat Jason and his three teammates accomplished in just 30 days and seven hours, absolutely smashing the previous world record by an astonishing nine days. In addition, Jason is the CEO of Latitude 35, which is an experiential leadership and high performance team building consulting company. He's also a widely sought after public speaker on the Fortune 500 circuit and has taught at some of the country's leading business schools like Wharton, Columbia, Berkeley, and West Point. Couple of things to toss in before we plumb the ocean depths, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including 
The long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, Jason Caldwell. So... I don't know what to tell you. I mean, this guy's done a ton of cool shit. We went for like two and a half hours and I feel like we only scratched the surface, but what we did do was talk adventure, of course, and what is required to tackle and accomplish audacious goals. Things like resilience, perseverance, risk, the willingness to fail, the importance of drive, humility, all with a very intentional and particular focus on something that I think is too often overlooked in the equation around success, which is the critical nature of team building, 
of cultivating community and the why behind the emotional drive to express human potential and ultimately bring out the best in others. If you're into wild stories of adventure, then this one is definitely your jam, but you don't have to be the slightest bit athletic to get a ton of value of what Jason shares today. So waste another moment, we will not. This is me and Jason Caldwell doing the thing. Nice to meet you, man. Thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah. It's a pleasure. This is this is an honor for me. So thank you. Lots to unpack here. Before we get into anything though, man, I gotta know how the body's healing up. How are you feeling? You look like you put some weight back on, <laughs> so I trust that it's all going well. Yeah, I'll take that as a compliment. But yeah, yeah. Um what are we like five weeks since I six mm-hmm. weeks since I did it? So I'm I'm largely better. Yeah. Um, first week is nasty because you're learning to walk again. You've lost twenty plus pounds. And then you put the weight back on, you know, then the hands hurt, I, tons of tendonitis. So that was probably the last thing to like mm-hmm. come back. But other than that, I started training, working out last two weeks. That's been good. I still have a little bit of numbness in some of my fingers. Mm-hmm. Like if I do that, I can still feel that go down just from yeah. just the constant pulling. But. but you have that every time, right? It comes back. Yeah, well, for the most part, this right. one, a couple of these fingers are taking a little while, so it's a little. So 20 pounds you lost, I think you lost 40 pounds yeah. on the Atlantic row, right? Yeah, I think I lost more than that on this one. They had me stepping on a scale at the beginning that was in kilos and then uh-huh. another one in Hawaii that was in pounds, so I'm not really sure. Right. <laughs> but I, I would say like probably it was probably closer to 30, but definitely not as much as the Atlantic. Do you do like blood work and stuff to figure out where you're at specifically? before and after? Yeah, I have. And we did on this one. In fact, we were working with a company that was, want us to do blood work and take blood samples the whole way, the whole way through mm-hmm. so they could analyze it afterwards because mm-hmm. you know, when are they gonna get a chance to kind of analyze the blood composition of this type of endurance you know, adventure. But the thing is, we couldn't get blood out of our fingers out there. And really? I, I'm not even sure what this is. It's either like massive dehydration, but I'd prick my finger. I'm sitting in a cat, little tiny cabin, like rocking back and forth. Like squeeze, I can't get a no like blood's one coming out. little drop, which wasn't enough, mm. and so we. Had, I don't. I don't it's think weird. I'm too happy, yeah. I mean, just trying to wrap my head around what goes into an endeavor like this is mind blowing. Um, as I mentioned to you before the podcast started, I watched a documentary this morning, um, and I thought I had a sense for the kind of challenges that that you would face and have to endure. Um, just being wet all the time and the sleep deprivation and just you know what it's like to be on that boat. But to see all the footage that you had, and this was chronicling your, your um, Atlantic adventures, but just all the sores on your hands and the sores on the feet and what happens to the seat and how much your ass is hurt. Like it just sounds so awful. Yeah, you're <laughs> it's describing it well. You know, <laughs> and I can't remember which teammate of yours, like you showing how his hands turn into claws and you, yeah. you, you would pry your fingers open and then they would just close again, no matter what you would do. Yeah. And the numbness that you get in your fingers and the fact that like, after this, you truly can't walk. Like there's a lot of, I think it's you where your calves look like, your, your legs look like sticks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So your lats are huge, your shoulders are huge, your chest muscles kind of atrophy, yeah. it all goes away. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you've nailed it. It's just, you become so singular. So you train for a year mm-hmm. or two for this thing and you train all parts of your body and you're doing cross, you're doing swimming and trail running on top of all the rowing. But then in the end, it's, it's, it's pushing with your legs and pulling with your back. So the chest goes, the calves go, you take 
three steps to your rowing seat every two hours and then three steps back to the cabin right. after that. That's it. And that's it. So, so then you just lose the ability to walk. So, I mean, like most endurance sports, they ruin your body. I mean, it's not a healthy thing right. to do. You get healthy so that you can go ahead and let yourself get broken down and uh-huh. then rebuild yourself back up. What are the biggest differences between rowing the Atlantic versus rowing the Pacific? Yeah, this is this has been something I've been thinking a lot about. I mean, right off the bat, the Pacific seemed more violent. The water's colder, mm-hmm. the highs were higher, the lows were lower. So that, that first week in the Pacific was just coming off of the continental shelf was just brutal. Yeah, and we should just say you started you started in San Francisco and you yeah. end up in Waikiki basically. Yeah, exactly. And it's like 2100 nautical miles something like that. 24. 24. Okay. Yeah, give me those extra 300. Yeah. Miles, All right, please. man. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, it's just it just seems a lot more violent like the sea was moodier and then the second thing that was obvious and I'm rowing with two of my teammates had rowed the Atlantic as well, mm-hmm. you know. So we all had a good comparison and it was just it constantly changes. The Atlantic is consistent. I mean, as consistent as an ocean can be. Sometimes you'd get good weather in the Atlantic for three, four days at a time, where it's just that same consistency. You've got nice little swells that you're surfing down. You've got good winds, um, you know, and you've got kind of the same sea state. And the Pacific was like every two hours, it seemed to change. Mm. It was like, and in some ways it was nice because if you had bad weather, it's like, well, hey, wait two hours, it'll yeah. change. It might get worse, it might get better, but at least it'll be different. So that was the Pacific, it was just, it was rougher, more violent, less consistent. So I, I think that that was what was apparent to all of us kind of as we started rowing. It's interesting to hear you say that because in watching the documentary, which chronicles your two Atlantic crossings, it doesn't look like the Atlantic is consistent. No. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like it's throwing everything at you all at the same time where it's constantly shifting. Yeah, and it is, it's all relative. Yeah. There's not really anything such thing as consistency in, in mm-hmm. the ocean. I mean, you're in this huge body of water and you're pretty sure that at that point you're, you're, pers- you know, you're personifying the, the ocean. I mean, you, you're giving it human characteristics because it seems like it's out to get you. So whenever you get too comfortable, it's, it changes it up on you. And we certainly had our fair share of that in both the Atlantic crossings mm-hmm. you saw on the dock, but the Pacific was just, uh, it was just this idea of, you know, we have this, this world record that we're trying to break. Um, we've got a teammate that's, that's never done an ocean before, mm-hmm. but even with that, we've got seven ocean crossings between three of us. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's by far the most experienced team. So you've got this idea where we, there's nothing that we haven't seen, right. you know? And so the Pacific will be different, but it won't be, it won't be dramatically different. We won't be shocked by anything. And that was wrong. We, mm-hmm. we, we were absolutely shocked by mm-hmm. stuff out there. Well, there's so many threads to pull here. There's the endurance piece, there's the training piece, like there's the mindset piece. How do you get your head around doing something like this? There's all the experience that you bring to bear to, you know, put yourself in good stead to, you know, accomplish your goals. And there's the leadership piece and the teamwork piece, which I think is really interesting here as somebody who's um, really an individual athlete. I mean, no, there, there is no such thing as individual sports. Like anybody who's performing at a high level, even in an individual sport has a team that supports them. But there's something very unique and specific to the sport of rowing that I have really learned to appreciate just in diving into your story and how crucial that combination of skill, experience and camaraderie comes to play in terms of dictating whether you're gonna be successful or not. 
100%. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to talking about the team aspect of this and, you know, we'll go off your lead, mm -hmm. but, you know, the interdependency of rowing, I don't think there's anything quite like it, at least that I've, I've experienced, is this idea that there's no all star. You know, there's there's no there's no LeBron James on the team when you cross the finish line, whether you're doing, you know, collegiate elite level sprint rowing, which is two thousand meters, or you're rowing across an ocean thousands of miles, you don't cross that finish line, people aren't saying like, Oh, it's that guy that did it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you're giving up that that individualism. And that's what rowing does is you're choosing to give up that. And that's not an easy thing to do for type A personalities yeah. and highly competitive people. I feel like you perhaps understood that intellectually before your first Atlantic crossing, but there was a lot of pride and hubris, yeah. you know, in, in, in how you put that team together and where your head was at in terms of what you thought would happen and unfold. So talk a little bit about what went into that first Atlantic. We're gonna go back and tell your whole backstory, but yeah. you know, that idea of like waltzing into this crazy race, but putting together essentially what was an all-star team yeah. of like the best, rowers that you could find and just thinking, well, these guys are the best. Like we're gonna, we're gonna crush this thing, even though we might be missing an experience piece. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing when I'm hearing you kind of frame it like that, my mind automatically goes to this idea that half the race, you're not rowing. So you're rowing mm -hmm. two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day throughout the entire crossing. So. And let me just stop you right there, sorry yeah, to interrupt, no, but right. why is it, why do you arrive at this two hours on, two hours off? Like, how did you figure out that that's the best recipe? Yeah, this is the golden rule that people are trying to upend all the time. Every, every new team that wants to be competitive and thinks they've got it figured out, tries to f change it, including myself mm -hmm. a number of times. And you just go back to two hours on because, so let's take, let's take going longer. Let's say you do three hours on, three hours off. You gotta make it consistent. You're gonna have to spend the same amount of time off as on. So yeah, that's extra time off, but that third hour is just so unproductive as a rower. I mean, even as a, an elite rower, you know, and highly trained after two hours, you're just not putting a lot behind the oars. There's just, mm. there's just not a lot of purchase there. And yeah, you're getting more, more time resting, but it's just, it's such an unproductive third hour. So what you make up for in the extra sleep doesn't pay off in terms of forward momentum I just think, behind, the, behind the oars. No, I think there's also a lot of diminishing returns even for the rest piece. People think three hours is not a lot and two hours is just ridiculous, but two hours is enough if you, if you do it right. So- It doesn't sound like enough. I know it does not, we'll get into that. But, <laughs> yeah. but the third hour is not good. So then if you, you went the other direction, you said, okay, let's do like an hour on, an hour off. Okay, well, there's the obvious thing that mm -hmm. you're only getting an hour of rest, which that's just not enough to even get some kind of sleep. Cause there's other things. You're not just getting off the oars and then falling right to sleep. You've got to cook food. You've got to drink water. You got to take care of your body. You've got to take care of the boat. But also that's just more shifting, you know, that's more rotation. So you're doing, you know, on a two hours on, two hours off, you're doing essentially six shifts changes over throughout the day with yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you double that, it's just more time where people aren't rowing. And yeah, over one day, that's not a lot of time, but if you're adding an extra like three minutes a shift times six shifts times 30 days, yeah. it adds up. Yeah. So you're talking about trying to find that happy medium and two hours, I mean, yeah, you can play around with different things. You can go, maybe you can go an hour and a half, maybe you can go two and a half hours, but there's something to be said for consistency out there too. And your body gets into this, mm -hmm. your body gets almost crate trained a little bit like mm -hmm. a puppy is like, puppy hates its crate. Just like you'll hate to go inside that small little cabin when you're seasick, but by, by day seven, you're looking forward to it. Right. It's a place of safety, 
fall asleep quickly. Yeah, the body and the mind kind of figure out, okay, this is what's this is the program. Exactly. Like now and I'm locked amazing. in. Let's just keep doing this one thing. Exactly. So you start to find out that like two hours of sleep is or call it an hour and forty minutes by the time you mm-hmm. get down, you feel like you can actually get some rest there. And yeah. that's what you come to expect. So we'll get back to the yeah. team building piece, but just so people understand these transoceanic rows are four man crews. So it's you and three dudes. You're on a boat where essentially uh, at, at um, each end, there are cabins, two people row at a time, two people are off. And I've heard you talk about how actually the time off is more challenging than when you're rowing. And yeah. I suspect that's because when you're rowing, that's all you're doing. You're just doing this one thing. It's almost a relief. All I have to do is <laughs> row back yep. and forth. But when you're not rowing, you gotta take care of yourself. You gotta mend all your wounds. You gotta you gotta feed yourself. You gotta repair the boat or take care of whatever you know mechanical situations you're you're, you're dealing with. You gotta get the rest. There's a lot of stuff to keep track of. So there's a mental toll to all of that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's when you're rowing. That's what you train for to row. And so there's something, like you said, it's kind of a relief to know, okay, I'm on the oars for the next two hours. This is something I know. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of unknown when you're off the, off the oars and you're having to do things like feed yourself and take care of your body and anything that responsibility is on the boat, but then things come up, you know? Uh, you get off course, um, something breaks, something's not working. And then all of a sudden the time that you were supposed to be sleeping is now being used to fix something. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing is that you might, that might be a rest, but that's only if everything's going right. The guys that are on the oars are on the oars, they row, they're propelling the boat. So their only job is to move the boat in the right direction. So anything that comes up on the boat during your off shift is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you know, going back to that idea of this, this first row where maybe I thought it was gonna be a little easier than, than it was. And I think that was what I neglected. And I see a lot of, teams going to the first time, they, they don't think about the off shifts. And I, I encourage people to spend a lot of time thinking about the off shifts because it's not just those responsibilities that I was just talking about, but mentally you're looking at that clock. Okay, I've got an hour and 50 minutes. Now I've got an hour and 30 minutes. Now I've got 47 minutes left. And oh my gosh, I'm not falling asleep right now. And then you're thinking about that. So then you're not falling asleep even longer. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're looking out that little cabin window and it's pouring down rain and they look miserable and you're 20 minutes away from being out there yourself doing it. And all of a sudden it seems like you can't even finish the next two hour shift, let alone the next 20 days. Yeah. And that, that kind of emotional toll and, and mental anguish associated with it is, that's, that's a pretty powerful demotivator mm-hmm. if, you, if you haven't like spent time kind of thinking about that in preparation. Mm-hmm. How religious are you about the two hours on, two hours off? Are, there's gotta be moments where somebody's sick or somebody's not feeling it, or you just know, you know, so-and-so is a little bit weaker today than yesterday. Do you make adjustments and kind of read off everybody's energy so that it's more a little bit more fluid than rigid? Or do you just, nope, two hours, you're up? It's, it's very rigid on our team. I mean, not every team is like this. Some teams are just trying to get across and that's an admirable goal just to do that. But if you're trying to win a race, set a national record, maybe even set a world record, you have to be that strict. Now, that being said, we have, and all of our rows have had sick teammates that can't quite get over the seasickness right away or injury, in which case we decide as a team that we're gonna take some shifts. And that happened in this last row. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely the right thing to do. So then you are making changes and you know, I'm gonna row an extra hour, so I'm gonna do a three hour shift and then someone else is gonna come on. 
But outside of those things, it is a strict two on, two off. And it, and it really is strict. So as, if I'm rowing and I've got like three minutes left until my end of my shift, I better see that light in that cabin go on. Mm-hmm. If not, I'm gonna give a little knock on it real quick because he's gotta get ready to go. And if you think about it this way, this is an interesting stat. My last row was third, took us 30 days to cross San Francisco to Hawaii. If your teammate was late just two hours, or sorry, two minutes to your shift, if you had to row just two minutes of his shift, every shift, which doesn't seem like a lot, Mm -hmm. by the end of 30 days, you'll have rowed an extra six hours. Mm -hmm. That's a half a day of rowing that you would have taken from your teammate just because he's just taking a little more time to put his shoes on. So, you know, that's fortunately for our team, we treat it with respect that it deserves. And when that time comes up, that person's ready to go. Right, 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 right. All right, so the first time you attempt to do one of these, I never know what year it is because the Atlantic Road takes place over the I new know. year. So is it 2015, they, 16? They call, they call it 2015 because we start that, right. that time, but yeah, it's, it was 2015, 16. Right, so. Or as my wife you, likes to say, by the way, three weeks after we got married. Yeah, I know, right? In the documentary, <laughs> you get married and then you just fly to the Canary Islands to no like go deal. do this thing. Right? We did We did go on a honeymoon. She has no idea what what is, you know, she's she's in store for with this. No, she's got her own story, that's for <laughs> sure. Know, Good yeah. God. Um, but you spend two years getting ready for this thing, right? Like studying the maps and trying to figure out what the strategy is and most importantly, recruiting a team. Yeah. So talk a little bit about um, that process and how that's evolved based on what you've learned doing this. Yeah, so the first part is the recruitment. I mean, you can imagine it's a pretty shallow pool to try to find people that A, are willing to do this crazy endeavor and spend a month plus mm-hmm. out and away from everything they know, but then B, the two years of training and prepping for this thing. So I rode for a, a boat club, Vesper boat club in Philadelphia after college, an elite team. You know, training for Olympics. Legendary club. Yeah, I mean, it's it was an honor to be there, and I spent I spent three plus years there. You know, being at six foot four, two hundred plus pounds, the shortest and lightest guy on the team. Uh-huh. And so I was a little guy for three years. I had a, I had, a, I had that complex for a while. When I got home, I, the guys didn't like that I was jumping on their backs. I, was, I thought that my smaller yeah. friends could hold me up. But um, so when I was recruiting, I wanted to be it once again. You know kind of the smaller guy on the team. I wanted to get some of these big, strong guys, but I, I really couldn't find those guys just, you know, they'd graduated and gone on, started career, started family. Yeah, so the opportunity like cost. Goldman Sachs and stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, all the Ivy Leaguers. Yeah. I was like the little state schooler there, but uh, um, yeah, they're all, you know, the opportunity cost had just risen too much since mm-hmm. we left Vesper. So, you know, I was desperate to find those those types of individuals, and you know, I got uh, I got one of them. You know, uh, a guy that rode at a different club, but a very good club. Nick, he was a big, strong athlete. Mm-hmm. But the rest, Tom and Greg, who who I recruited as well, on paper weren't those weren't those athletes. But you know, I think one of the things I learned about what these these other rows after that is there's there's just a difference between you know, the, the best guys and the right guys. Mm-hmm. And I was so obsessed with always getting the best guys, you know, on paper, it had to be b- big, tall, strong, good 2K scores, you know, how fast you can roll 2000 mm-hmm. meters on a rowing machine. Shit doesn't matter out there. You know, what you need is somebody who's selfless, you know, who's thinking about everybody else a little bit more than they're thinking about themselves and, and those types of process oriented people. This is stuff I just didn't know in the first race. Right. And there wasn't a lot of ocean experience with these guys. Like yeah. on paper, they had amazing CVs and were super accomplished rowers on the collegiate circuit or what have you, yeah. but really didn't have any experience at a race like this. 
And it's uh, in the documentary, it's, it's Angus. He's kind of like, yeah, we'll see how this goes, yep. right? He's, he's on the British team. He's kind of casting a glance over, you know, at your team going, yeah, they're talking a big game, but you know, we'll see what happens when we're out there. Him being this like sort of master, rower who has all of this ocean experience at the time. Yeah, exactly. We had zero ocean rowing experience. Now that's not unheard of for any of these teams. I mean, most people have never had done right. an ocean row, but people like Angus who have grown up at the sea, he had actually done a row. He rode the Indian before that. So we were rowing against a guy who's mm-hmm. put the team together and has ocean rowing experience. But yeah, I mean, he was looking at our team and saying, yep, they can row in flat water, great conditions for short distances really, really well, but this is, the antithesis of that. Right. And so, um, you know, we, uh, yeah, just this kind of naivete that we went in and just thinking like, well, it's just like a flat water row. We just have to do it for a longer period of time mm-hmm. was, uh, was detrimental. Yeah, you, and, and you soon found out, I mean, pretty, in, in pretty short shrift, things went sideways. Yeah, so, you know, the first thing that happened was, you know, we're not even a day out, from the Canary Islands where the race starts. You know, we've got 3000 miles of open ocean to go and we've got a teammate, Nick, my biggest, strongest teammate that's getting sick and seasick. And you know, we're all, we're all feeling it for mm-hmm. sure. And it just genetically are gonna, everyone deals with it differently, but he was just getting absolutely rattled by it. And he was not just getting ill, but as he described, it was like, like someone was squeezing every angle of his head and then shaking his head. So he was disoriented. And it just got get, just kept getting worse and worse mm-hmm. and worse. And you know, we had by day five or so, we had you know this 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 teammate that not only wasn't rowing but was very very ill. So we had that issue, and then we had another issue with with Greg, um, who just didn't want to be there anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was kind of the the kind of the the mental prep that I was talking about. Just he was he was not willing to to make the crossing, and um, you know. To his credit, he was rowing his shifts all the way through. So when we had to get an evacuation where Nick is being evacuated a week into this row, Greg saw the opportunity to to also leave and mm-hmm. and took it. So yeah, even though he was healthy, he's like, I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah, this exactly. This is I mean, not that, going good. Yep. So he was he was you know he was scared and it's scary out there and and he was he he saw this opportunity because at this point we're anchoring. So, mm-hmm. so we're not we're not even moving. We're anchoring for two days, waiting for the sailboat to basically cover the distance that we had covered over the last week to come right. up to us. It's going to take them two two days. So we're we're anchoring six hundred miles off the coast of Africa, watching the last you know two days. We know the boats are just getting further and further away from us, knowing that I, I know I'm staying. So you know, right? But this idea going into it that you're gonna you're you're aiming to win, you're aiming to break the world record, and suddenly you're in close to last place, anchored, you know, two guys <laughs> getting carried off your boat onto a, a safety sailboat. I mean, the scene in the documentary of getting those guys off the boat and onto the sailboat was you know unbelievable. <laughs> it I mean, was much more harrowing than I would have thought like that would be. Yeah, it was dramatic. I mean. We've got two guys that are, are leaving, but you've got a sailboat that's you know five times the size of our little rowboat trying to you know collect two people, one of which can barely even move his arms. He's so mm-hmm. sick, 
from the sea, the open sea. So, you know, we're, we're having to drop them in with their life jackets on, but like, and they have to pull them in with a rope. And at one point we lost the guy who was sick. He couldn't hold on Nick. Uh, and he was just drifting out there. And as you probably saw on the dock, mm-hmm. he was interviewed afterwards and said, that was the only time in his life he's ever been scared. And yeah. you saw him fighting back those tears yeah. as he's watching the film for the first time. So he's just bringing them right back to where it was. And this is, as I've said many times before, it's one of the most tenacious athletes I've ever met. I mean, this guy was nails. Uh-huh. And um, just broke him. Just broke him. I mean, that's what the ocean mm-hmm. does. So suddenly, your four-man boat turns into a two-man boat, and uh, and then you and Tom decide, like, all right, well, we're just gonna we're gonna just keep going, just the two of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was not as easy yeah. as we're just gonna keep going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom took some convincing. Uh-huh. I knew I wasn't gonna leave, and Tom's one of my closest friends. He was in our wedding. Um, this is a guy I've worked with for years and my last pick on the team, by the way, because you know, you saw from the dog, he's not a big guy and he's tall, but he's mm-hmm. skinny, has trouble putting on weight and muscle. And by yeah, that he looks by the end of the thing, he looks like a marathon runner. Yeah, 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 yeah. he does. And he's just, I mean, he he didn't he couldn't lose any more weight than yeah. he had already lost. I mean, it was starting to get really like kind of that's why he's having back problems by the end of it and stuff. I think it was just I mean, I think that, that row was eating into like his mm-hmm. his muscle and tendons and stuff, but you know, he didn't. He wasn't sure he wanted to stay right away, but uh, he finally got convinced, and uh, so you know he stayed on. And uh, once the evacuation hit, we're, I just have this vivid memory of just seeing that boat sailing off, literally into the horizon, mm-hmm. heading to the Verde Islands. And we're just, and they're getting smaller, and we're just bobbing. We haven't started rowing. We're just the boat's just bobbing up and down, and we're seriously trying to figure out like what is our like, what is our strategy here? We're, we're 2,400 miles away from the finish. We're in a boat made for four or five people. Mm-hmm. Now gonna be rowed by two. Yeah, and your goals are out the window. So Done. you need something else to kind of anchor your focus. Yeah, you know? yeah. what was that motivator? And, and I think we had a conversation about it. I think what we decided was to prove everyone wrong, because there were people that said like, we have a responsibility to get off the boat as well, because this can't be done with just two people. You know, this, like they said, this boat's meant mm-hmm. for four or five people. Um, this is just, this is, this is irresponsible. And you're putting other uh, competitors at risk because if you do need a second rescue, that means resources diverted away from somebody else's boat exactly. if they needed help. Yep, if, if, the, if one of the safety boats is closest, they're gonna have to divert their route to get to us, which mm-hmm. you know could strand other boats. Also maritime law requires that any other vessel out there, even if it's a big shipping freighter that has the ability to rescue us and is close, must divert their route to come. And so there were people saying, it's inevitable that that's gonna happen. So you're gonna just, you're gonna waste time and resources and money from somebody. Mm-hmm. So it was irresponsible for us to stay on. I never once saw it that way. And I mean, when you choose a life of adventure and endurance rowing, you're constantly gonna have to convince people that what you do is not irresponsible mm-hmm. and selfish, yeah. even though to a certain extent <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's my big, that's uh-huh. my big uh, argument. So it was, what, you know, what is gonna get us through? Because one of the things, that, and this is, we're talking about lessons learned from this first crossing is one of the ones I learned is that you know, glory kind of takes you to that start line. You know, the thought of doing something that no one else has done and you get these pats on the back when people hear that you're gonna do this and you've got sponsorship that's behind you and um, you know, a charity that's behind you. And all of a sudden you're feeling pretty good about yourself, but that glory 
will not get you to the finish. When you are bobbing up and down in a boat with just you and one other guy, 600 miles off the coast of Africa with 2,400 miles to go, those pats on the back and all that stuff, that is not what's gonna get you across. And we spent too much time kind of soaking that in and not enough time trying to understand what gets somebody across some, you know, an extremely difficult distance such as an ocean. And what I found out is it's shame. <laughs> it is being more afraid of letting down your teammate who's in the boat, your family who's rooting for you, your charity, your sponsors, your friends, your, your family, your community, being more afraid of letting them down than you are of the elements and you are mm-hmm. of dying than you are of, um, you know, being scared of getting drenched that night. And that shame is what gets, what got us through. It was, mm-hmm. it was in what I call later, it's cause shame's not a great word to be using because it's that kind of leveraging of human emotion. Yeah. And that's what we did. We, we leveraged each other's human emotion in a way that we were more afraid of letting each other down than we were of the elements. Yeah. At the same time, you also had to find a way to be of mutual support to each other, right? So you have this experience where, um, you're rowing and Tom's like, what do you want for breakfast, right? Like that was, that feels like it was sort of an inflection point in terms of how um, you guys were gonna interrelate to each other and support each other, but even more broadly, a lesson in regards to kind of teamwork and leadership generally. Yeah, it was a huge point that we didn't notice then. It wasn't until afterwards that we realized um, how pivotal that moment was because we're, you know, we had been rowing with, for about five or six days by ourselves. And we're, we're still doing two hours on, two hours mm-hmm. off, by the way. But instead of being with somebody on deck, you're by yourself. Yeah. So you're rowing two hours while the other guy's getting some sleep in one of the cabins and then you're rotating. So there's all this kind of solitude. I mean, just think about five days of, you know, we're chatting with each other every two hours just in passing, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so we get pounded by this storm and it's just, it's just relentless. And this is where you start to think that the, the ocean's out to get you. And so for three days, we just get pounded by this storm. And I'm gonna be honest with you, like at the end of the third day, I just, I wanna quit. I do, I wanna quit. And I'm mad that I allowed us to stay out there. And I feel guilty for convincing Tom to stay out there because he's not doing well. And you know that's where we have this kind of, without hope or agenda, this breakfast moment where He's about to come on his shift. It's like, I have like the 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift and he's about to come on that shift and get ready at eight. And instead of like coming on, he just asked me like what I'd want for breakfast. And I remember like at that moment being upset with him for asking such an insensitive question because up to this point, yeah. kind of the, the guy that was coming on shift would kind of offer the words of encouragement, empathy and you know, that's what I was living for. I'm at my lowest moment, probably my whole life at this moment is my lowest. I'm thinking the dark thoughts of wishing I could quit. And I wonder if there's a boat close enough and I'm, I'm about, you know, that's what I'm thinking. I can't get those thoughts out of my head. And he asked what I want for breakfast. And I kind of just play along with it a little bit and just tell him what I, my favorite freeze dried meal, which is the chicken risotto. And he says, well, I like the spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> and we're having this conversation. He says, you want me to make you some coffee? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know. He's like, do you want me to put the powdered hazelnut creamer? And I love that stuff. So I said, yeah, sure. And he, he makes a deal. This is the deal he makes me. He says, if you row an extra 10 minutes, like I'll make some food for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm aware at this point, this is 10 minutes of his shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, very You're aware. vulnerable. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like a little bit like, where's he <laughs> yeah, going with this? Yeah. 
But you know, I hate making the food, and he knows that. I don't like to do the jet boil. I'm, I'd rather put the muscle into the oars, and you know, he'd rather cook than yeah. than row. So, you know, we I make the deal, and and you know, sure enough, after after some time, he he says, I got some food for you, and we turn around, and I stop rowing. And again, we don't even we're not trying to. This isn't planned, but I pull the oars in, and we just have that breakfast together, and something. Really dramatic takes place. It's you know kind of like a, a subtle but dramatic shift in kind of the mentality of the boat. We just we just hang out. We're just mm-hmm. two buddies at that point, sharing stories of what's happened to us the last three nights because we've been by ourselves and we're kind of desperate to share with somebody. You know, so we just kind of talk, and all of a sudden we could be we could be at home. You know, talking in one of our on our living rooms or something like that. It's just there was this comfort that washed over us, and. From that, you know, it's thirty minutes or whatever, and then we went back onto our ships. Mm-hmm. But from that moment on, for the next forty-one days, we always did breakfast. It was just something that we could look forward to. And again, didn't know it at the time, but looking back, it was just a way for us to kind of re-answer the question why we were doing this. It's like had that glory idea at the beginning. That is not going to get you through. No, you don't care anymore. That people are excited for you to finish. It's just not pulling you through. But I sure shit care that the guy that's sitting twenty feet away from me is going through a tough time. And if I could just row a little harder for him on this shift and he comes out and he sees that I put four miles in instead of three, mm-hmm. that'll make him happy. And he'll wanna yeah. do the same because he won't wanna let me down. So it was just this back and forth for the next 41 days of just trying to live up to the other person. And it was just, the ante just kept getting higher and higher. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. breakfast was a way to kind of realign ourselves yeah. every 24 hours. I mean, if you're just ships passing in the night and the only exchange that you have is when one's getting you know, off the chair and the other one's getting in, you're not gonna be in sync. Like you've gotta be aligned, you know, emotionally yep. and check in with each other when you're working towards this goal. Otherwise there's no way. I mean, the ship would quite literally capsize. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. And that kind of realignment was, and that breakfast was our way of just kind mm-hmm. of realigning ourselves and kind of reminding ourselves of why we're doing this by looking someone else in the face that you can see, man, the last 24 hours beat you to shit. You can see it in his face, you know, yeah. and he can see it in mine. And I was so proud of him, you know, because Tom is, you know, to this day, he's my close friend, we work together, but I, I just, he had no business being out there. You know, we had a, we worked together in an old company. One of the guys that worked there actually, you know, our boss said, you should cut Tom from the team. He's not. He's not built for this. And I remember considering it because the guy that was saying this, our boss was a former Olympian. Mm-hmm. He knew rowing. And I'm so glad I didn't, <laughs> you know, because he on paper was not the right guy, but absolutely the right guy for this boat. And I, I just was so afraid to let him down. And I knew that he needed me to put the muscle in and I did. And he was so afraid to let me down. He'd cook for me and he'd, He'd get bandages out for me when I, you know, when I had infection. He's like, "Cause I know you're not going to take care of yourself, Jay. So let me help you do it." You know, it's just this this brotherhood, and um, you know, it was, you know, quite frankly, you know, kind of one of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me. Yeah, and you end up passing a bunch of boats. You end up finishing. You going for you go from almost last to eleventh, right? You get eleventh in that race. It took you fifty one days, yeah. but I feel like. That was you getting a master's in you know <laughs> what you needed to know to go back and and you know have a more um, a more perfect attempt and it had nothing to do with 
how you trained for it, like all the stuff that you would think like, okay, back to the drawing board, like we need to change this, we need to change that. It was all about the emotional piece, right? Like extrapolating on that breakfast experience and the guy who, you know, was healthy, but got decided to leave. Like you go back to the drawing board and you're like, I got to solve this through a different lens. Yeah, and just even to take it once, uh, take it a step back is, is that I didn't have no plans on doing it a second time. Even mm-hmm. if I, I didn't win, I was I, th- I thought this is a one and done type of thing. I mean, so few people have ever even attempted a second one. And most of those people are, are because they didn't finish the first time. You know, they made it so many days. They had their call out. They want to try to do it again. Like for us to finish was still a great thing, but like I couldn't shake the sense of failure and. I even, I say this in the doc, but it's so true. As like, I remember the juxtaposition between my emotional state and Tom's emotional state as we are coming into the finish line, seeing everybody on the cliffs, you know, seeing our families as we come in as he was just, he was giddy. He, he, he was beside himself. He was so excited. Mm. And I did, I felt like I was acting to be as giddy as him. I, I did feel that way because I think Meaning I knew- you didn't really feel that way. You felt that like way. you had failed. Or yeah. what was the what was your interior yeah. experience? I, I don't know if I, I I don't know if I had to define it as failure yet, although I, I did later and you know, I had, and I still do today as a as a captain, as a leader, I had failed that team. But at that moment I just felt this idea like I felt like maybe I was only halfway done. Mm-hmm. I felt like this that I was gonna have to do another one. Mm-hmm. And Tom, I knew was never gonna do another one. And that he was had, it for him. Yeah, yeah, he had nothing left to prove. <laughs> I mean, you see, you see the pictures of him, you know that. Um but there we both we both entered for different reasons, you uh-huh. know, and he had proven everything he needed to prove to himself and to anybody else that doubted him, but I had something left to do. So, you know, that's that was what happened is stepping off as I didn't feel the closure. Coming back for more, but first. Okay, back to the show. Well, let's spend a few minutes there and maybe this is a good time to like take it back a little bit because I'm interested in in that internal drive that you had um, as somebody who who had been successful as an athlete, but had never really had the victories that you sought, right? Like yeah. it was always like you were the guy who came in second or had an opportunity to do something great, but something would happen and you wouldn't quite connect with it. So there's this, you know, kind of cauldron inside of you, this sense that you have something to express and and yet kind of repeated frustrations with your ability to execute on that. Yeah, as wall full of silver medals as I like to call it, that's really what I felt like I was to include where we are here in this story of finishing this first row. It's, you know, played baseball in high school, played, played in college, um, got injured, uh, I was a left-handed pitcher and needed to- But even before that, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but like, let's take it back to your dad because I feel like your dad, <laughs> your dad put some heat on you, right? Like this guy was expecting, you know, some exceptionalism out of you. Yeah, you know, my dad was, uh, you know, him and I are, are, were close and still are very, very close. And, but he was a guy that took you by your word if you said you wanted to do something. Mm-hmm. If like, if you said you wanted to be a professional baseball player, he's like, even if you said it at seven years old, he wasn't placating you. He's like, okay, you said it now. Now we're gonna, now we're gonna mm-hmm. see if what you're really made of. I'm, thank goodness I didn't say I wanna be an astronaut because I think he would like <laughs> been putting yeah. me through you know, uh, that kind of training. But you know, being a ball player himself, um, growing up, 
this was his wheelhouse. And so it was, I felt as a child, constantly proving that I was doing what was necessary to be the best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if I wasn't showing it on the on the ball field, then then I wasn't doing it off the field to make it happen. You know, it wasn't there's was no such thing as a bad game. It was just ill prepared. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, there was a lot of a lot of pressure and um, even going into college and playing, there was an expectation there. And I wasn't meeting those expectations. And even like even the injury to be fair, to be very honest, and we're being honest here, is that it was probably there was a little relief. You know, mm-hmm. there was a there was a relief when that injury happened, and I could have gotten the surgery. Yeah. And believe me, my dad wanted me to. He says, "You get the surgery, you take a year off, you rehab, and then you go back in." Yeah, you and had I, the Tommy John elbow thing, right? Yeah, just the torn tendon, and it was like I remember him being so surprised when I said, "I need time to think about whether I'm going to get this surgery." And you know, because we got the MRI results that that day. And he says, oh, there's nothing to think about. You get it and you pursue your dreams at all costs. And I, while I agree with that mentality, I just don't think I was in the right sport. I didn't know it at the mm-hmm. time. And I was told I loved baseball and I was passionate about the sport, but I, I realize now that I liked baseball, but I, when I got into rowing, I realized what love was. Uh-huh. So- You needed that, that backdoor exit. I did and I took mm-hmm. it, you know, and it, it, it Again, these are all things that you you process later in life, you know, because when I hurt myself in baseball, I was in my mid twenties and I didn't know anything. But so, how was Dad when you said I'm not getting the surgery? Yeah, he was not happy, and you know, we didn't talk for a little while too, because I remember specifically, you know, it wasn't a like a f u f u and having a blowout, and I slammed the door and go back to college and never talk to him again. But it was just like all of a sudden, you know, the, we just didn't pick up the phone to call each other. It wasn't dr- that as dramatic. It's just because I remember because I got a younger brother and. You know, uh, his birthday's in September. And I remember going home for that. This is the first year back not playing baseball at Sonoma State. And I'd gotten into rowing since then because school started in August. I got recruited by the rowing coach. I'm loving it. I'm finding I'm pretty good at it. And I remember going to that family birthday, little pool party and uh, telling my dad, like I got into Mm -hmm. rowing. And like, this is the first time I'm telling him this. So I knew we hadn't talked for a while. And um, it took him a long time to get on board, but to his credit, he did. But I'll tell you what, <laughs> he didn't know what was going on the first, the first little yeah. side note, he didn't know what was going on the first regatta. Because first of all, my mom is always championing me because I'm her only kid and she's you know, annoyingly mm-hmm. optimistic about everything. First of all, she's always late to everything. So she went from a sport that takes three hours to play to a sport that takes six minutes to complete. So mm-hmm. she like missed my first three regattas. She showed up too late and missed them. My dad, meanwhile, gets to a regatta with my, my two little brothers. First time, you know, this is that year, the first year he's like, okay, Jason's in a new sport. We're gonna support him. This is his new thing. And I appreciate that. that. And he gets there and he sees tents lying in the river and free food on all of them. So he's just mm-hmm. sending my brothers to the ringer getting bagels and he doesn't realize it until like some nice parents are like, oh, these are actually for all, these are, this is actually for the, this is for Cal Berkeley. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, what, what school does your kid go to? <laughs> Sonoma State, oh, it's that one that's leaning yeah. against the rock Every over there. Every for a different. Yeah, he's, yeah, just, yeah. he's just like, oh, great, free food, uh-huh. these are awesome. So, you know, I'm bringing my family into a new world. Mm-hmm. 
That's um, pretty funny, man. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched, uh, I was on an airplane the other day and I watched Molly's game on the oh, flight. Yeah. Have you seen that? Oh yeah, it's a great So movie. I'm seeing a lot of parallels here yeah. a little bit. Yeah, know? yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. As she jumps into a new arena. Right, exactly. It takes all that fire and just applies it elsewhere. Yeah. But you didn't, I mean, this happens your senior year in college, right? Yeah. So you actually only row collegiately one year then. Well, I did. And then I got accepted to Vesper's summer program right after my first year of rowing. Mm-hmm. So How did that run. happen? Because only one year in a boat? Yeah, it was- When a, you're going up against dudes that have been doing this for- Since as know, I've been playing yeah. baseball, as long as I've been playing ball. Yeah, so I mean, that's, a, that's a, an interesting story because I've got a collegiate coach who's trying to build a program at a no-name rowing school, Sonoma State. I mean, they hadn't even won a race when I come onto the team. Right. This is hardly head of the Charles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't Harvard versus Princeton. Mm-hmm. Sonoma State's a no-name rowing program, club sport, so it doesn't get hardly any funding. But he, but this coach understands how to build teams. He's a, he's my first true mentor in how to build teams, and he went to every sport at Sonoma State and said, "Give me a list of the guys you cut, the guys that got injured." And I'm gonna go off those lists, talk to me about them because I'm looking for a specific thing. And my name was on the baseball list as someone who got injured. And he was looking for people that no longer were part of something greater than themselves, so to speak. And he was gonna go and offer them. He was right. saying, I'm not offering you. But also the people who are looking for what the next thing might well, be and had it? a bit of hunger. Exactly, yeah. and I, I made that list and he, he approached me in a weight room and I was a little like concerned by how much he knew about me. Uh-huh. But he convinced me to go to this, it's a rowing and shortly thereafter, I, you know, I started to fall in love with the sport, but that was, he, he knew that he, he just needed to put a, a bunch of special people together and let create an environment that they could win. And all of a mm-hmm. sudden, guess what? We started winning. We didn't just give Sonoma State their first win, we gave them their first six. And we have a little special team, just enough to gain some interest from some school, um, you know, boathouses back mm-hmm. east, Vesper being one of the best, if not the best elite rowing team in the country. They just gotten a new coach, Mikiel Bartman, three-time Olympic medal winner and three different Olympics for the Netherlands. Just retires at, at 40 after, after winning his last medal in Athens. Gets the job as the head coach, moves from the Netherlands to Philadelphia. Now he's responsible for putting you know, the next great team together at Vesper. And you know, they, they, they offer 12 to 16 spots max for that team. And uh, my coach at Sonoma State, Mark, mm. Gotta, gotta give him credit, he's calling every boathouse there. I mean, they're not, he's not even getting any calls back. I mean, Sonoma State's a no-name school. He's telling me, I got this one guy, you're gonna want him, you're mm-hmm. gonna want him, but no one's, no one's biting. But McKeel calls back and McKeel's interested in my, my baseball history. He mm. thinks that, you know, if a guy that can play it at this level, that maybe I can turn him into a rower. And what we didn't know, I found out later because McKeel becomes another mentor of mine and one of the greatest coaches I'll ever know is he, uh, he loves baseball. In the Netherlands, one time when he was in high school, some ex US pro came and took batting practice <laughs> on, his, on his field and he just fell in love with the, the sport. And so he said, let's give him a try. So I show up to this boathouse, knocking on the door. First guy that answered the door, six, seven. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh man, I am out of my league. And I, there was a moment I thought about, maybe I should just duck and run. Like, just not even go to this first practice. And Mikhail says, basically, don't get too comfortable. Like, let's see what you can do. Yeah. Basically, I spent that entire summer just getting my ass kicked up and down the Schuylkill River. He enters me in the toughest races in the single. So I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a single, mm-hmm. just, getting, just getting my ass kicked. But I got better real fast. And so at the end of that summer, he said, Mikhail said, look, you're not, 
you're not good enough to make the year round team here, but let me go ahead and get you into Penn, which was two doors down the Ivy League school. Let me just get you in there and then you can row at Penn next year and I can keep an eye on you. And then, you know, let's try to get next year because I think there's something here. But I told him like, if it's all the same to you, I'd like to go back to Sonoma and row with my boys over there, which he thought was crazy, but he let me do it. And uh, I went back to Sonoma, enrolled as a geology <laughs> master's program. So just to let you know, Rich, I've got one year under my belt as a master's All in right. geology. You, you, know, you know a little thing about rocks. Yeah, little rocks yeah, for okay. jocks, you know? <laughs> um, and I, and I, so I was able to row another year at college there. So, so just, you did a year there and then you went back? Yeah, so I got a uh-huh. second year rowing at Sonoma, just staying eligible I see. there, just gotcha. cause I knew I needed, I needed to get more, basically more strokes under my belt. Uh-huh. So then I went back to Vesper the next year and made the year round team. Yeah. So what did you do during that year in Sonoma that, that allowed you to make that leap? Was it just more time in the boat and experience and just the grind? It was that, but I was also, you know, this is, this is my journey into becoming a better leader. You know, that first year at Sonoma, I had a chip on my shoulder, you know, I was, too good for this sport, kind of sometimes too good for these guys. You know, I played baseball and I was an an elite athlete and I'm getting to this sport and this is a ragtag team of hand-me-down equipment and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I made good friends with a, a couple of the guys, but for everybody else, it was just kind of like the mentality that my dad has was like, prove to me that you're worthy, you know, of being, being on, in this boat with me. When I get to Vesper for that one summer in between those two years at Sonoma, I realized that that is not the type, the type of leaders on Vesper were different guys. They were, they were selfless guys. You know, um, They weren't necessarily even the biggest and fastest guys that, that were well-respected on that team. They were just these guys that everyone can count on no matter what happened. When they were in the boat, the boat went faster. It had nothing to do with how fast they could pull 2000 meters on the rowing machine or how much they could bench press or, you know, or leg press. It mm-hmm. was just when, when when Jaime went in the boat, the boat was faster. When you took him out of the boat, whoever you put in, it went slower. And I started to realize that there was this sense of when you were, someone was in the boat that you respected, you wanted to pull harder for them. They didn't have to pull harder. It's just the, you know, it's the seven other guys mm-hmm. in the boat that said, hey, Jaime's in this boat. We love this guy and let's pull hard for him. And everybody, and that's the force multiplier of rowing is yeah. that you don't need to pull harder. You just need to, leverage the human emotion of everyone else so that they pull harder. But you also have to work like a single organism, right? There's like this heavy symbiosis that has to occur. So if somebody's way stronger than everyone else, that's great. But if the energy's off and you're not kind of congealed into this unit, it's not gonna work, right? I mean, I I say that as somebody who knows very little about rowing, but it seems like that would be the case. Yeah, I mean, complete interdependency and swinging together and this Mm. idea that when you, the boat, and that's what's great about rowing and is when you are rowing well together, the boat gets lighter, it gets easier. You can actually feel like you could row that way forever. And so that's what you're aiming for. Every, every rower is trying to feel that swing, that flow, um, that means that everybody is, is rowing together. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was the second piece of it is that um, great rowers could assimilate to the rest of the team. They didn't force people to row like them. They gave up that individual ego for the collective ego right. and they rowed like everybody else. Right. And, and so you don't hear of these great individual champions. I think it it harms the sport in terms of like mainstream visibility because we don't have big names that we can right. rally behind because it's such a team thing. Yeah. But I think in the conversation around like 
great endurance athletes, like nobody's harder than rowers. Like these guys, you know, basically just destroy themselves. Like you hear about cyclists and marathon runners, et cetera, and all of that. But like rowers are like the anonymous heroes in the endurance world who grind like no other athletes I've ever met. That's well said. I've been rowing a lot longer yeah. than you have, and I haven't ever said it that well. well I just feel <laughs> like true. I feel like I feel like they don't get it. They don't get enough deserved kind of attention and accolades for what goes into being great at that sport. But I also I agree, and I also think that's what makes the sport so great. And there's a certain allure to that. And I think you when you hear about great rowing teams, that's exactly how they're called. They're they're, they're called the crew of mm-hmm. eighty seven. Or mm-hmm. you know, Vesper's crew of 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 '06 yeah. or whatever it is. That it's not LeBron and Michael Jordan. Exactly. It's this. It's the crew, and that's the word is 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 the crew. That's the noun. You know, rowing's the verb and crew's the noun. But there is something if you can get over that individual kind of ego of it all, which by the way is very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. But if you can, because you need ego, but it's the humility piece that that like is the distinguishing factor yeah. to make a champion crew. And, and by the way, the people that will know who did it is the rest of the team, you know, the, the, because you're the you're spending hours and hours and you know, thousands of meters rowing together, but you're also spending time on the docks, you know, you're spending time together. I mean, Vesper was a work hard play hard place. You know, we we rowed twice a day together. We had two practices a day, usually a weightlifting session in the middle. And Saturday night, because there's no practice on Sunday, that's the night you go out. Yeah, sure. So you're going out, you know, with ten other guys, and you're taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. Philly's not an easy place. <laughs> and when you know twelve big guys go into a bar or something like that, trouble ensues. But it's yeah. it's the guys that take care of, of each other. It's there. like a SEAL Team Six kind <laughs> of vibe, right? <laughs> yeah, except for we're not uh, as tough as those guys. Um, yeah. But it is it is definitely that way. It's this it's this idea. You know, there's this guy. There's this guy at Vesper. I know we're getting a little on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. There was this guy the first summer at Vesper. It's really what brought me to go to Sonoma the second year. Don Wiper, never forget him. Went to Dartmouth. You know, I'm there. I'm I'm a wide-eyed novice rower. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that these guys think, why am I even on this team? You know, I'm. You know, they're not being nice to me, but mm-hmm. they're not. You know, they're not including me in a lot of stuff. And I probably would have done the same. But. You weren't getting beat up by some Winklevi. <laughs> no, no. Uh-huh. In fact, I was usually the enforcer down the road. I was the, I was the guy doing all the, the rough housing if we got into trouble out there, as I'm sure we can, those stories are for another time. Um, but you know, this guy, Don, he was the stroke seat of the top boat at Vesper. And he's not the biggest guy. He doesn't have the fastest 2K and no one can beat him. No one can beat him out of that spot. And the, and the stroke seat, which is eight seat, that's like the quarterback of the team. That's, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. You're largely considered to be the best rower on the boat. He's not the biggest guy, not the strongest guy, doesn't come from the best school. Dartmouth's a good school, but in the Ivies, you know, they get, up, they get beat up by the Princeton, Harvards and Yales and no one can beat him. And one thing I just asked him, like, how do you do it? You know, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty certain this is my last summer, first and last summer at Vesper. Might as well get as much as I can out of this. I asked him one day in the weight room, I was like, how do you do it? Like, what are you doing to keep you there? Now, one of the things is to find out who as an individual is faster in a rowing boat, you row two boats for a length of time called two minutes side by side. You measure the distance that they got from each other. You record that distance, the coaches will. Then you take one person from each boat, you swap them, and you row them again, the same distance, and you see what the change was. That's how you find out how the individual 
is adding to the speed of the boat. And Don, and that's called seat racing. And Don would never lose a seat race, never. This guy, no matter who he was going against, he would always beat him. And I said, like, how do you always win the seat races? He says, oh, I just set the boat up. I barely row, let everyone else be, win for me. And that was when I started to understand this idea that if everybody that you're, of the boat you're going into loves, respects you, feels they owe you something, they will win the race for you. And that's what he was doing. He was the guy that would row extra mileage at the end of mm-hmm. practice because someone needed some extra work, always be the guy spotting you at the gym, picking you up from the bars, if you were, you know, you, you're out a little late, not letting the coach know, all these kinds of stuff. He was a player's player, you right. know? He earned that trust and that loyalty over time. And it was amazing. And the, that was measurable out on the water. That's an interesting thing. You mm-hmm. could measure his loyalty by the distance he would put between his boat and the boat that was behind him that he just got out of. And that was my first little like insight into what it meant to be a real leader. Yeah. So you're getting this uh this masters in in geology, but really what you're doing is you're 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 getting a you're getting a it, it's sort of like I got a master's degree and everything I needed to know about team building and leadership while sitting on a rowboat. Exactly. You know, right? Like, that's exactly what that's, I'm getting. That's the title of your next book. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So you go you go back to Vesper and what's the goal? Like the Olympics? Like what's What's the, you know? Yeah, I think aim. everyone's goal on uh, going to a place like Vesper as, as an elite is to, is to make the national team mm-hmm. or, or the Olympics or both. And uh, so that's, that's why you're there. I mean, if, you, if you're not there for that reason, you're probably not gonna last very long. But, you know, again, uh, my second- Well, other than that, what is there? Because it's not like you're, you know, making any money doing this. No, like, like you know, you're out of college and, you know, this is your life. Yeah, I mean, that is what it is. I think there's sometimes you'll see a guy who come from a pretty prestigious school and you'll think, well, this guy's serious. He's gonna be a force. And then he's just not that good. And you can realize that his heart's not in it. You know, Maybe he just wants to continue living out the glory days of his collegiate rowing. And he doesn't make it that long. Coach mm-hmm. will cut him fast because he just, it's the demand on your time and on your body is just too much to not have something like the Olympics or the national team in your sights. So yeah, we're all there. The guys that are on the year round team are there for that reason. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a brotherhood, it's a fraternity at that point. And we're living in these, you know, this old historic boathouse anyway, and that's where we're practicing every day. And, and so it's, it's a fraternity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what the end game is, is that some of us will make it and some of us will not. Mm-hmm. That's what's kind of so how does this play out for you? Well, I spent about three years there and, you know, go from this obscure baseball player slash rower who sh- probably shouldn't even be there, move my way up into the second boat and finally make my way into the first boat. And for me to do that- I mean, what, that's some pretty incredible progression for somebody who's still pretty new to the sport. Yeah, thank you. In a couple I, of years to go you know, from a guy who, you know, it's almost like they were doing a favor to let, let you kind of tag along to being in the number one boat. Yeah, no, I, I, that's you know one of my prouder moments is making that team, and um, you know I, I worked hard to get there, and I think you know McKeel took a chance on me because he, by accepting me on that team, somebody else didn't get accepted, mm-hmm. and that that person had probably been rowing a lot longer than me, is probably a lot faster than me on the water, but McKeel saw something, and I mean I'm not going to argue with that because I felt that 
Uh, first summer, I did not feel I deserved to be there, but the second summer I did because I learned so much. And so I worked my way up over the last, over the next two and a half years to, to getting that top boat. And um, I remember uh, the frustration of my, my last summer there trying to get into that first boat. And McKeel was the coach of the women's team there too. And that year they had a, a women's lightweight double that was going to world championships. So he was focusing on them a lot. And so he had another one of the coaches collegiate coach running our day-to-day practices. He'd pop in a few times a week and run the practices. But for the most part, we had to answer to this guy. And I would be seat raced, I'd be switched. I'd win every one of my seat races. And I'd still, when the lineups came up the next morning, I would not be in that top boat. And I was just getting pissed. And now, now I'm friends with these guys. You know, I'm, I'm close with everybody. And at this particular summer, that's when the, the, they infuse it with the summer kids. Mm-hmm. You know, these are kids that are still at universities, Princeton's, Harvard, Jails, and I'm, and I'm beating this Princeton guy every time for this seat. And every time when the lineup comes in the next day, I'm not in the boat and he is. And I'd gotten close to McKeel over the last couple of years, but and I was afraid to ask him, but I called on a favor. I went into his office. I said, I'm frustrated. I deserve to be in that top boat, I'm faster. The team knows I'm faster. The year round guys all think, you know, they say, you should be in that boat, Jay. It, and, but I'm not in it, I'm winning. And I said, I just like to see if, I'm not asking for you to put me in, I'm asking for you to watch a seat race. And I remember him saying, he says, I'm busy, we'll see. And it mm. was, wasn't really the response I was looking for. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that made me, and I, then I felt bad. But the next morning he's there and he, he comes to the, the, the morning workout. He says, all right, I'm gonna be running seat racing. And he says, um, so let's get out the boats. Here's the lineups, we're going. So he's in the launch with the, the coach mm-hmm. that was coaching us that summer. And we go out there and you never know who's gonna get picked, but my name mm-hmm. gets called, we row, we get switched, I win. And he just pulls the, his little bullhorn out and says, from now on, Jason's in the top boat, he won it. And I was mm. probably one of the best days of my mm-hmm. rowing career. And I, I went back to him and I just said, I appreciate that, that you, that you took the time. And he said, I, I, I knew I was gonna do it, but I couldn't tell you because I didn't wanna give you an advantage over your teammate to, when you knew you were gonna seat race that day. Yeah. And he said, you deserved it. And, you know, and I was able to make it there. But um, that was largely because the team that I had spent the last two years with day in and day out had, you know, I'd grown to love, they'd grown to love me. And there was, there was a palpable feeling when I got moved into the boat and those guys would look behind me, let's go Jay right now. So then how far do you end up taking this? I take it, you know, win, win a couple of gold medals at nationals, a silver and a bronze, these kinds of things doing well, but um, didn't qualify for Beijing Olympic trials for 2008. Mm-hmm. I mean, some guys did on our team and I just wasn't one of those guys. How does the, how does the selection process work for the Olympics in rowing? There's two ways to get selected in rowing. Um, one is to make the national team. There's certain boats in the Olympics where the national team coach simply selects the crew mm-hmm. that's gonna be in that boat. So it's called a selection boat. So you have to be on the national team. And like the men's eight, for instance, is a selection boat. At least it was when I was there. I still think it is. In which case the national team coach will say, all right, these are the eight guys that are going to the Olympics. Yeah, That's gotta be controversial because that's yeah. highly subjective, right? I think a lot of people wish that they were, it was all the other way, which is what's called the trials boat. So the rest of the, the other boats, that aren't selection boats are trials. It's an it's like the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. Anybody can enter. You go to the open trials, and you race. And if your team wins, your crew wins, you go. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was in. Um, my best chance was was in a men's double. Uh, so I, myself and um, my teammate Mike Ross 
and we rode all pretty much all summer together to try to try to to try to be able to qualify, but we we didn't qualify. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, it was going to be a long shot at best anyway for us. Uh, Mike's a very good rower. Um, came from Marietta, very good ro- rowing school. Um, incredibly gifted rower, um, but and we were we were so hot, hot and cold all the time. Sometimes we'd win a race, you know, by a landslide, and other times we wouldn't even get out mm-hmm. of the heat. So. Um, you know, we just weren't able to qualify. And, and it's still like to this day, I just, I think I just didn't have enough time. I'm still, you know, this is, this is my third year of rowing at this point. Yeah. You know, I mean, some people, I had the last Olympics, I wasn't, didn't even know what rowing was when people were right. in the last Olympics, so. Right, so you get that far, but are you thinking, all right, I'm in it for the next four years for 2012, or, you know, are you, you gonna stick it out for that? Or how does that play out? Yeah, that was the crossroads, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm trying to make that decision and I'm, you know, it's it's just, I put so much into it and not that I expected to go, I didn't. I was a long shot the entire time. Like it just, you know, I was small, I was inexperienced compared to these guys, but the thought of being another four years, mm-hmm. you know, training in Philly, putting off my career, you know, it was just, it seemed too much. And so I'm not not sure if like 100% I made the right decision, but my decision was to to be done, so I retired. Right. So with that, it kind of goes back to how I opened this, which is you're this guy who has a lot of athletic talent, you've got a lot of drive, you've demonstrated, you know, extreme potential, you've had some success, but there's this sense of unfinished business, yeah. right? Like so you can go become a civilian, but you're walking around sort of like a ticking time bomb because there's this thing inside of you that is yearning to come out. Yeah, and it's just, uh, you know, I, I move back to California, you know, and that's what it is. It's a restlessness begins to kind yeah. of set in and this permanent restlessness is just a, a hard thing to cope with. And I remember I'm not home for more than, I don't know, four or five months. Then I decide to go travel. So I leave, mm-hmm. I'm pretty much traveling off and on for another year, going to Europe and all these other places. and. You know, I just, I, I'm trying to find that thing. And in the end, I was trying to just settle down permanently, but I think it was just an intermission, you know? <laughs> <laughs> was there an awareness, like what is the relationship between like the hardcore national team, Olympic caliber rowers and this whole other culture of ocean rowing? Cause those, yes, you know, one's gonna feed the other, but they don't really intersect. I mean, they're very different disciplines, right? So yeah. is it, looked down upon, is it revered? Like, you know, how does that interplay between those two cultures work? Well, I think they're actually just now starting to blend in more with um, open ocean rowing coming into the Olympics and becoming more of an international sport. So before- Is, op- is open open ocean rowing in the Olympics? It's going to become an Olympic okay, sport. Not, not, not trans ocean rowing, but open ocean rowing where you're going distances in oh, open wow. ocean. And that's exciting for the sport. And that is now starting, you're starting to see a blend. So you, now you're starting to see flat water rowers or you know sprint rowers, collegiate and elite level mm-hmm. rowers start to think about transitioning in mm. to open ocean. When I started open ocean rowing, there, there, was, there was really no, we were the overlap. But we, that was the big idea, right? Like here, I'm gonna take everything it. I know about athleticism and apply it to this world that needs, you know, an upgrade. Yeah. You know, like we're gonna approach this from a, a an elite athlete perspective exactly. versus like a salty, seaworthy, you know, rogue kind of, you know, veteran ocean rogue guy perspective. Exactly. And so I would say at the time that I was starting to do ocean rowing and doing exactly what you said, 
I would say that each of the different practices looked down on the other one. So I think flat water rowers, the, the world that I was coming from said, no, that's where you go when you don't make it, mm-hmm. you know, or like you're not, you know, you're, you're just gonna use the one skill that you have, which is endurance to try to win, um, you know, but you're not gonna be able to put the skill into it. Well, the open ocean rowers said the opposite. Uh-huh. They said, um, <laughs> you, you know, where did rowing come from? Well, it came from open ocean. I mean, where do you, the first rowers were the Vikings, you know, these mm-hmm. are the, this, everyone thinks of traditional rowing as flat water rowing that we see in the Olympics. That's not what it was. What it was, was big boats, rowing just great distances in the ocean. And then it was people yeah. faring, it's people Viking back and, shit. Yeah, exactly. You know? so, so the open And ocean that's rows, cute that you go, yeah. you know, to the Henley and like row on that flat water for, for, you know, like a couple minutes. Yeah, exactly. But when you really want to understand what rowing is, like, come on over here. That's exactly what it was. And you'll, we'll see what you really are made of. Mm-hmm. So I'm all of a sudden, I'm, I've got my foot in both camps and I'm not being. <laughs> but you had to hurt, you had to sort of learn the hard way yeah, I the, mean the ultimate truth where these these uh, salty dogs were coming from. Exactly, and so where they were spending a majority of their time saying, "Look, look, these salty sailors they they knew how to read the ocean and weather patterns, and they understood tides and they understood weather. Um, they understood that world. They spent those two years of training teaching themselves to be better rowers. Whereas mm-hmm. this first row for us, we were these kind of elite level rowers that had to teach themselves." what it was like to be on an open yeah. ocean. How we do you t- navigate? How do you do that in the middle of the night? Exactly, so you're dealing with- And underappreciating how crucial that was to the success of the, yeah. the entire affair. Exactly, so when you've never done open ocean before, you're thinking, okay, I row for two hours, which I can do that. I've done that on the rowing machine plenty uh-huh. of times. And then I rest for two hours and that's nice. I remember, you know, I'll tell you how naive I was. I brought, I'm a pretty avid reader and I brought like, seven books with me. I thought I was gonna be able to read on my off time. I was like, this will be great. I'll row hard and then I'll just be in the cabin reading. Yeah. Well, I didn't get one sentence in because first of uh-huh. all, the first week you can't, can't look at a book. You're so seasick, you're gonna mm-hmm. throw up. I was like, this is the last thing you have time for is to read. This is how naive I was. And I still have those books on my shelf and I love looking at them. They make me laugh because you got these nice books with these great bindings. And then you can see these ones that have just been Introduced, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. So they're all wrinkled up and stuff like that. Uh-huh. But I didn't read them there. I read them when I got home. That's hilarious, man. <laughs> um, yeah, and also on top of that, on top of the navigation, it's like picking your route. Like, what's your line? Yeah, you're not going to go a straight line, first of all. So there's two there's two things with routing that you're going to have to deal with. One is the overall route, the three thousand mile crossing that you're going to have to deal with. You can't go by way of the crow flies because you're going to have to follow. You want to follow the currents and the, mm-hmm. and the tides and when you get out and then the, the wind, the prevailing winds. So that doesn't often, often mean straight line. It usually means some kind of a J shape. And then the other thing is when you're out there, you're making constantly making changes to your route because you're, you're, you're avoiding storms or you have to go through storms. You have to go north of them, south of them. And you're not a, a sailboat or a motorboat that's going 15, 20 mm-hmm. knots. You're a, you know, if you're lucky going three to four knots. So you're not gonna be able to avoid storms. You're just gonna try to get yourself in a position to not be in them for very long. So you're having to make all these routing decisions and, you know, they don't have, you know, we, we took classes on routing, basic routing, like how to read, you know, your GPS and how to like mm-hmm. use the tools and instruments on your boat to your advantage. But, you know, the only, the only real way to learn is to be out there doing it. Yeah. There's no uh, substitute for experience with yeah. that, right? Like being in the ocean and just having that tactile feel for like 
what's what's the right thing to do. Exactly. You know, and, exactly. and that's kind of like where I feel like Angus is is like the dude when it comes to this. Yeah. I mean, to this day he's yeah. I would say some people get mad at me at this. I say he is the the greatest ocean rower out there today mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, he is he's proven it. Right. So you in your first Atlantic crossing, you saw what he was capable of and and what like you just you're like I need that guy on my team now. Well, they, his team, his boat, British boat wins that year, right? They, did they set the record? No, they win the year. They won the race that year. So this is 2015, 16, the same time Tom and I are out there. They, they, they win the race, they set the course record, but fall short of the world record uh-huh. by a, a day or something How is there like a that. difference between the course record and the world record? Because you don't have to enter this particular, Atlantic campaigns oh, is the race right. and it's, right, it's, right, it's right. a fantastic race, well-organized. They do a fantastic job, but there's a lot of teams that don't want to do the race. They don't want to pay the entry fee, they push off. Mm -hmm. In fact, before Atlantic campaigns became the organized event that it is today, that's how people were doing it. They were just going on their own. How long has that event been around? It's been around for a while. It's been around for a while. I think it it was taken over by its current ownership. I want to say like 10 years ago. Um, My gentleman named Karsten, Mm. great guy, did such a fantastic, he's done so much for the sport. Um, and uh, organizing it this, but I think this race has been going on since like 96. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got the course record, but then you've got the world record and the world record was at that point set by a team that went independent. Cause what they're doing is they're, they're gonna wait for that perfect set to come in. Right. And then they're gonna push off. They're yeah. not, they're they, not. They, they go when the weather is right, not when yeah. the gun goes off in and, the race. Exactly. And the race for safety's sake requires certain things, which adds weight to the boat, mm-hmm. you know? A life, a life raft, which is essentially the weight of another human being. Sixty days worth of food for five people. That's a lot of food. If you're not, if you're not expecting to be, if you want to try to break mm-hmm. a world record, you don't think you're going to be out there for sixty days. Right. So, but you're, you have to carry you that weight. Be out there for half that. Exactly. So you're, you're you're carrying double the food that exactly. you're probably going to need. Yeah, or even more because that's re- representing five thousand calories per person per day, and for the first week, you're not consuming that much because you're seasick. You're sick. So, and no matter what, you're getting seasick, everyone's getting seasick. Is there is there something that comes with experience where you get less seasick or you're able to dodge that? I think, yeah, I think with experience, you'll, you'll know how to handle it better and you'll know what your body needs to do to kind of, to kind of eliminate some mm-hmm. of the, the symptoms. The worst is gonna be the first time you do it. And you're just gonna get, you're gonna take it on the chin. Um, you know, for me, I, fortunately for me, I don't, I don't actually physically get ill. I'm very lucky, but I mean, the first five days I'm disoriented, I'm dizzy I'm, and I have no appetite. But one of the things I do is I, I like to starve it out. So it sounds weird, but like, I will try to eat as little as possible. I'll, I'll, I'll have a lot of calories going into the thing, mm-hmm. but like then I'll just eating dry food, a lot of dry stuff that just to keep the stomach feeling all right until it just clears and then I'll be, I'll be starving. Yeah, that seems dangerous though. You could get yourself into a crazy deficit. And I, my teammates have talked to me about that and that's why I lose so much more weight than most of them. But I like, I can play in that space pretty well. I know mm-hmm. myself and I know I'm still, my, my energy levels there and I can, you know, I've trained my body to burn, burn that kind of slow burning, you know, lean muscle mass for a long time instead right. of, you know, just that. So that fat goes quick, but right. then it's the lean muscle mass, so. So you go back to this race and you put together a whole different team. We talked about Angus, but learning what you learned from the experience the year prior Walk me through kind of the process of, of wrapping your head around who are gonna be not necessarily the best people, but 
the right people. So you have that perfect recipe of experience and athleticism, but also um, this, you know, kind of unified organism that we were talking about. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I know I'm doing it again. Talk to my sponsors, they're in, they're excited. And, um, but I, I'm, I'm kind of left with like this blank canvas. I'm like sitting at my desk literally one day, just being like, okay, where do I start? I want people like Tom, Tom's not in, mm-hmm. he's gonna be the land manager for it, but um, he'd done everything he needed to do. So I want the people like Tom, but where, where am I gonna get those guys? And how am I gonna know, you know? Because I thought I had more people like that on the first right. boat. And, you know, to bring Angus up again, Angus and I had become relatively close over the course of the last year, because although we were competitors, he um, worked for the boat manufacturer that we bought our boat from. And just as two captains of two teams, we talked and got to know each other at the start line because you're there for two weeks. And he calls me one day, you know, this is kind of as I'm kind of just sitting at my desk, you know, and he calls me one day and says, uh, I hear you're putting together a new team. I said, yeah. I am, I'm gonna do it again. And I had heard that he was gonna do it. And he said, yeah, cause some, some team was gonna pay him like 30,000 pounds to like just literally skipper them across, just mm-hmm. have that experience so they didn't have to learn it. I said, congrats. I told him, I said, congrats, because you know, that's, you don't make money in ocean rowing. So yeah. for you to be able to make that is like fantastic. And he says, well, if, I, uh, if, uh, if you haven't built your team, I'd be interested in rowing with you, which shocked me. I mean. I would love to have him on the team for all the reasons we've already talked about, but I don't have that kind of cash, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't have that money to, to pay him. So I said, you know, I don't, I don't have any money to pay you. And he said, well, I'd be interested in just doing it for nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm kind of balking at it says, well, geez, I, I'd, if you've got somebody willing to do 30,000, like maybe you should take that. And he says this, he's his line, I'll never forget, he says, I'm more interested in making history than I am in making money. Mm. To which I even say to this day, I said, and you must add that on a post-it note on your computer somewhere <laughs> or something like that. People don't come up with cool lines like that on the phone. Like this is like, but you know, I knew at that moment, I think when he said that line, mm-hmm. that this was the start of another Tom, you know, a right guy. Um, it was a bonus that he had the experience and that he, you know, that he was the athlete that he was. But here, here we're talking about we're at fifty percent of the right team right now. Mm-hmm. So we committed and started building from there. Mm-hmm. From there, he said, you know, if I was putting this team together, I'd call a guy named, uh, you know, Alex Simpson, and uh, I kind of heard that name before. And, and he said, yeah, we rode together in the Indian Ocean because they had done the Indian Ocean before the Atlantic. I said, well, why is he so special? I said that, he's like, oh, he just shuts up and rows. Uh, I'm <laughs> thinking to myself, well, you might wanna give him a little more credit than that if you want him to be on this team. But you know, what he basically is saying is like, this is a guy that, you know, you got a lot of type A personalities, you know, you and I are gonna be splitting this kind of skipper burden, so to speak, you know, this leadership burden. This is a guy who really is process oriented. He takes, mm-hmm. he takes, the strategy, the idea, the leadership that is not his own, but it kind of absorbs it as if it was and passes it down to the rest of the team. So I gave him a call. This is this guy's 10 years younger than me. And so I'm a little worried about his, you know, his young maturity kind of thing. But from that first phone call, just wants to know, how are we gonna do in eight months that the rest of the teams that we're going against are taking two years to prepare for? Mm-hmm. It was just process, process, process. And I understood what Angus was saying at that moment. Meanwhile, you're in California and they're both in Great Britain. This is, this is something that we're having to discuss. Yeah. You know, how much time are we really gonna be able to spend together? 
So I'm, I'm wanting to get another American, you know, if we've got three guys here now, we've got two, two of them are, you know, in the UK and then I've got myself here in the US. And so um, I'm really trying to, you know, say having the same problems the year before and trying to round out this team and being very, very careful. And um, guy I rode at Vesper with, Matt Brown, very intelligent guy on top of being a great row, rode at Yale, um, then rode at Oxford. So an intelligent guy, and, and by the way, Rodan, but also like a beast. Yeah. Also, dude. yeah. Forgot yeah. to mention, also like a ginormous <laughs> yeah, human being yeah, yeah. who, uh, yeah, can like bend an oar when he's putting it in the water. But I think the thing that really attracted me to him was that, and it sounds weird, he just lost at Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. So here we are, you know, um, in the summer he didn't qualify. He went for the men's single. That's the toughest one. You're by yourself, and that's by the way, that's a, a trials boat. Anyone can enter that. Rich, you could enter it mm-hmm. next year and go and try to do the open like, and and you'll have to get out of the heats. But he he got all the way to finals, but didn't qualify. And I'm thinking to myself, this is it. He's lost right now. He's rudderless. No pun intended. He's trying to figure out like, what am I going to do? This has been my dream, and now it's over. And he's probably at the same crossroads. Do I go another four years? But he's got a two-year-old at home. He's married with a two-year-old. I mean, so uh, I was like, uh, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna offer him this something else. And that's what I did, I called him. And as he said to me, he's like, yeah, you didn't have to finish the sentence, I'm in. And it wasn't an I'm in because I'm naive and I don't understand this stuff. He had been following me in my race the year before. And this guy was no stranger to hard work and no stranger to being an underdog. I mean, he came from, you know, from nothing, you know, and built himself up to having a first rate education through working hard. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was our team. And all of a sudden now we've got a team. Yeah. And taking everything that you had learned the year prior and these kind of lessons about teamwork and leadership and what went wrong before and how to course correct that, like how do you then approach, you know, this group of guys as a leader? to get their heads around what you guys are gonna try to tackle also while you're all dispersed all over the place. Yeah, that was the that was the big like that was the big problem to solve for. And we've got, you know, very little time. And I just, you know, I'm always harking back to this idea that Tom and I had. I'm like, how do I recreate that like feeling that we had during those moments of breakfast without actually saying, okay guys, we're gonna do this breakfast thing. Cause you can't, mm-hmm. you can't and it has to be organic. And I'm just realizing that you know, as nice as it was to have one other guy that you were kind of leveraging his human emotion, he in turn was doing that to you. Wouldn't it be nice if it was for the whole boat, you know? And then I like, I really didn't stop there. I was thinking like, well, we should include our family members, you know, like our wives and girlfriends and, you know, our extended family and our friends and our neighbors. I was like, if we created a community of people that once we got to the boat and we started rowing, we felt, were relying on us, then that would be a strong motivator in there. And so that's what I did. I just basically started to create a community. So we rode and we got bigger and stronger and we rode together, but I we went out there, they came out our way and we just spent a lot of time together as a team. And it was, it was rowing, but it was also dinners. It was drinks. It was meeting each other's wives and girlfriends and spending time with them. Um, you know, it was, it was brotherhood, it was fraternity at that point, building this commu- this sense of community. And then it was, if anybody in our family group, our friend group, our neighbors wanted a job on this team, they wanted to be part of this team, we'd find something for them to do, something that we needed done so that when they did it, they felt they were part of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So you go fast forward to, we're at the start line with, you know, we're back at La Gomera, the start line a year later, 
and there's it feels different, you know. It, it feels like there is a lot more riding on this. And I go back to that thing where glory gets you to the start line, but shame gets you through the finish. There was this idea of feeling that we were we had a lot of people that were that were looking up to us to, to, to do this, to finish the narrative that they were a part of, and that was a a strong motivator and something again that I was kind of learning in its entirety for the first time that you and you've got people that are not saying, you know, do this or else, but are saying that I'm part of this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm passing the baton to you now. Now it's up to you guys, finish this story, finish the unfinished business. The stakes were a lot higher. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just about you and some kind of vainglorious thing. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of people invested in this, but for the right reasons. I'm sure everybody has their distinct respective why. Sure. Your job as a leader is to figure out how to take all of those whys and 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 have them cohere to one kind of singular why that will unite your yourself as a team so that when you meet those obstacles which are a certainty and are going to come in many unpredictable ways that you'll be able to tap into a different gear to exactly. support each other through it. Yeah, I think that one of the many leadership burdens that you have as a, as a, as a captain is that you need to take everyone's individual whys and somehow convince them that by going to, through with the team why that they will mm-hmm. still be able to achieve their individual wise. And that's a tough thing to do. Look, Matt was doing it for a certain reason. Alex was doing it for another reason. Angus and myself, we all had different reasons why we were there. But what I try to convince them all is that to go as fast as we can for as long as we can, to go as hard, to give everything that we have out on that water will simultaneously take care of all of our other singular Mm -hmm. objectives. And I think that's where that trust piece comes in as a leader is that people have to trust that their individual objectives are gonna be taken care of if they buy into the team objective. Mm -hmm. That is a difficult thing to convince people of. Yeah, I would think so. And even probably more difficult in a corporate context. I mean, it's the principles are the same, right? Whether you're rowing a boat or you're leading a team at some corporation, as the leader, you have to get everybody to to buy into some kind of singular vision. And you're asking these people to give of themselves. So what is their why for doing that? And why should they trust you? And when things get difficult, how are they gonna you know, kind of stick with you and not just bail and go get a job somewhere else? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of times and as part of my job, I work with these corporations and, and teach this leadership and one of the things that they say is, is that your, you know, your stories are great and your examples are great, but like I, I I'm not rowing across an ocean. I'm mm-hmm. just, I'm just doing this, this, this one single thing. And I think when you're in a corporation, these corporate leaders, their burden is to ennoble or like to make noble the effort that they are putting forth. And um, when you're asking, and this is, this is something that I'm quite passionate about, is that if you're asking someone to give all of themselves to something, then you are also asking them to be changed by that something. I mean, that's what happens. That's what happened with Tom and I. And this is what I'm understanding as we're in that second row is Tom and I are different people. We're not the same people that left the shores of La Gomera at the start line. We're just different because we gave all of ourselves to this endeavor and to each other. We're just different now. We talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And. I'm also different than I was before I left for that second row because I gave all myself and so did the team. We're all just different people now, but 
that's not a casual thing to be asking someone to do because there's a lot of people out there that say, look, I just wanna come into work every day and do a really good job and then leave and then forget about it and then come back and do the same thing the next day. And that's fine, by the way, like that's absolutely fine. But like if you're a part of a, of, if you're trying to like create, like you said, like this idea of high performance and yeah, there's a lot of parallels between it. Then that's what you're asking people to do. You're asking people to actually be changed by I me. Mean, that's why love changes mm-hmm. us, right? We, we give ourselves, all of ourselves to somebody and now we're different people because of it, we're in love. And, um, you must first be able to answer that for yourself, you know, and be okay with that with yourself. Am I okay with being changed by the thing we're about to do? Am I okay with being a different person when I come home? And then once you've done that, you need to be able to do that with everybody else. And people are gonna resist that. Yeah. People are messy. People are messy. You know, and that differentiator between just you know, showing up and going through a certain routine versus the high performance version of that really boils down to that emotional piece, understanding what motivates people, how they tick, finding a way to tap into that and engender that level of trust. And then doing the kind of unromantic community building, right? Like that's, and that's what you did that second time building that team. Like how do we, you know, how do we create a community that is gonna be self-supporting in all the best ways? Well, you have to put in the time. You have to invest the energy into doing that. Yeah, and that's the, like you said, that's the non-sexy stuff that the mm-hmm. the day to day. You know, ninety nine percent of all this stuff is not not great. I mean, right. think about the row. Like the start is great because everyone's right. taking pictures, you're pushing off. Yeah, why can't them. everyone just be wherever they live, train really hard, show up, and we'll just crush this? Stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would yeah. make my life a lot easier. Yeah, right. So trying to figure out what that is, but that's what you've got. I mean, you know, the start is great and the finish is great. Mm -hmm. And the middle is brutal and ruthless and uncomfortable and you wanna quit and you're getting into arguments with your teammates, you know, and stress levels high and the danger is high and, you know, but you're rowing a million and a half strokes, give or take. I mean, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of mundaneness in Mm -hmm. that. Not unlike the corporate world where you're saying, oh, this is all great, but every day I just do this stuff. Like, yeah. you know, like what if, you know, what if I'm in procurement? Why does my job matter to the larger organization, the larger picture? The leader needs to prove that it does. Mm-hmm. That consistency piece. My favorite part of the documentary is, is when you guys are pushing off for this second Atlantic row and uh, it's Matt, right? He just, he just hits it hard. Like he's just going for <laughs> yeah. it. Like in the first couple hours, you're like, bro, yeah. we're gonna be out here for like, you know, a month. Oh man. Chill out, but it's that competitive. Like that's what he knows. He, yeah, no, And he no was chance. the guy who didn't have the ocean experience yeah. to realize like, hey man, you gotta like take it breezy. Yeah, he was taking it like a 2000 meter And then he row. just face planted for like a week, oh, right? Man. And I, I'm, I'm having deja vu with Nick the year before. I mean, he goes, in the, he goes in so hard. And as he says, I was highly motivated. I'm like, I know uh-huh. you were. Yeah, but you can't sustain that. In the most that. unsustainable way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're out here for over a month and he's going out. I mean, he's drenched in sweat in the first three hours. I mean, he's eating this like, Pasta dish that just I'm th- I'm I'm sitting here going I'm eating a dry granola bar I'm just I'm waiting for it to mm-hmm. hit me because the seasickness is going to hit, and it hits him and man it knocks him flat on the ground, and he is out five or six days and I'm I'm in, I'm having deja vu from Nick because he's doing the exact same thing he's in the cabin yeah, and I'll I'll never forget you know we're taking shifts off of him and this is where you know I've got a chance to change the narrative here, 
And I just, I just remember we we took shifts from him, and uh, you know we kept going in there, and he, you know he, he was just lying face down, and and I remember we had taken shifts, and I was like, I gotta at least see if you can row, and I'll just never forget. He just looks up, and I I said, can you do it? And he just looks up and says, We'll see. <laughs> and it was just like, I mean, this is this is a guy who gets into UCLA on academic merit, finds out he can row, gets gets recruited by Yale after his first year, then goes to Oxford as if it's not good enough for him. I mean, this guy mm-hmm. just is a and winner. It sounds like he came from kind of a messed up childhood, right? Like yeah. it was a pretty rough situation. He had a rough situation, that's his story, not mine, but you know, he uh he had a bad and he you know, he is as he says I looked at teammates as obstacles that I had to crush. And I always just thought that was such an interesting way of looking at it. That's, that's mm-hmm. his whole life was that the people that I was with were really just in my way. And even teammates were obstacles Right, so no wonder he ends up as a single skull yeah. rower, right? But that doesn't work when you got four guys who have to live with each yeah. other for a month plus in the open sea. But I think, I, to this day, I think, maybe him getting sick was the best thing that could have happened for him and the team because he Got saw, humbled. yep, exactly. And he saw what the team did. We picked him up seamlessly, myself, Angus, Alex. It wasn't a, just so you know, we're rowing your hours right now. None of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he felt he was delirious. I mean, he woke up and he didn't realize how long he'd been out. We, we got it. And by the way, stay in there. We got you still. And I think this was, this was a game changer for him. I mean, when he got better and he did, and he got stronger, but it took him a week plus. He felt he had to live up to it, make up for it. And he didn't, right. of course, because that's not what teams are about, but he was so humbled and so appreciative that he became he became an animal out there. I mean, it was insane. Uh-huh. And when we were chasing the world record and it was coming down to the hour, he was that differentiator. I mean, he was rowing four, six hours straight without stopping. Yeah. It was insane. Yeah. So you guys didn't have the most auspicious start. No. Um, but you kind of find your groove, you get some good weather, you're you know, throwing it down pretty hard. You got some storm. I mean, there's all kinds of shit that happened. Day 50, there's some crazy storm or yeah. day, what day was that? Day 30, got, it was day right, 30. right around day 30, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you just throw the hammer down in these final days and you're just busting out like 80, 90 mile days to you know, come in and, and eclipse the world record by a pretty good margin. Yeah, I mean, you know, without giving too much of away with the doc and stuff, but I think the pinnacle of my athletic career came at that moment on day 30, we, we get knocked by this storm that should be there, pushes us backwards. We have to anchor mm-hmm. for just a few hours. But when, when you're talking about, you know, barely being ahead of the world record, this matters. And finally the storm's kind of starting to pass. We're able to pull up the pair anchor, start rowing again. And, you know, at one point we were going 0.8 knots. 0.8 knots, right. that is, you can crawl on your hands and knees at about that. How so, many days did that go on for? It was I mean, only- just ended up it, dropping it, anchor. Yeah, right? it, basically it started the day before on uh, January 12th and it slowed us down, slowed us down until finally January 13th, which was Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. And I'm not superstitious until now, now I am, <laughs> but it hit us hard and that's when it just slows down. We, we, had a, we couldn't make any forward progress. So we had to drop the anchor. So we went and get pushed back. We're only an anchor for a handful of hours, but it's enough because not only are we not going anywhere, but like we've been not going anywhere for about a day and a half now. So we start rowing, I'm in the cabin and I'm having to do the math. 
you know, what has this storm, like what are the repercussions of this storm? What's it done to us? It ends up being really, really simple math. You know, I'm checking it over and over because I got, you get this kind of mental fog when you're out there because you just have such little stimulation plus you're sleep deprived and malnourished and dehydrated. But it's, it's really simple math. We've got basically almost exactly to the mile, 400 miles left to go and almost exactly to the hour, five days to do it. So it becomes 80 mile days. Mm-hmm. We have to basically achieve 80 miles a day for the next five days. And then like, it'll be close if we do that. And just to put in perspective, 70 mile days is world record pace at that point. Mm-hmm. Like that was what would have done it. So like I'm in the cabin, I'm just, I'm upset. I'm starting to cry a little bit. You know, I'm just, this isn't fair. We've worked too hard. These guys have worked too hard. And, you know, I kind of compose myself a little bit because I know they're waiting for me to come out there with the, with the number and I come out and, you know, I've got these three expectant faces looking at me and, and uh, you know, I tell them what I tell them and, the responses were just so interesting. I, I'll never forget them. First of all, Matt, who, you know, seasick and um, kind of comes back, roaring back, so to speak. He goes, oh my God, thank God. I thought you were gonna say a hundred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this guy was genuinely relieved that we only had to do 80 miles a day, which is 10 miles above world record pace. Like he, he believed so much that this team was capable of it, that he was relieved that it was right. only 80. And then Alex, the young kid, process oriented guy, he was just like, I'll do whatever it takes, Skip. He called me Skip all the time and said, I'll, like, I'll row every hour of the night if I have to. Meaning and those were his worst nights. He'd literally pass out in the m- middle of his rowing shift because he'd be so tired, just like black out sometimes. And all of a sudden I'd feel heavy and I look back and he's be like, have to elbow him, like mm-hmm. you gotta get up. He was just letting you know us know that he would row his worst hours if that's what it was taking. Like he was all in. And then Angus, you know, he was, he was just saying that, this is what we did. This is why we combined forces. You know, we wanted a chance at, at history. It's not like a great one, but we've got one and it's ours. And mm-hmm. I thought, damn, if that isn't the best response of any three teammates you could ever have. I mean, that was when I knew that like I had done what we needed to do. You know, I, I came back because I failed as a leader with the first team. And it's more, more specifically with Greg, you know, the guy who left who was healthy. You know, it's, I always say it's easy to get down on Greg he left, he abandoned us. And believe me, you don't wanna say his name in front of my dad because <laughs> my dad can't stand him. But um, in the end, it was my, my fault. You know, I failed to get him to a place that he wanted to be like Tom, you know? And I, I never could shake that. And so that's why I came back. And all of a sudden I've got three guys that are willing to do whatever it takes in the next five days when they're, we're already beat up. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're so beat up. And, and so I say, all right. So we, we roll the first, of that five days, because we're not quite out of the storm. We row three people at a time, instead of two, it's three, which means instead of two hours on, two hours off, you've got two hours on 40 minutes of rest. And I'm thinking to myself, this is gonna be a rough first day. And we do it for 24 straight hours and we row 79 miles, which right. you know is good. Good, but you're behind. But yeah, for putting all that much effort into it, yeah. we're still one mile off of our pace. And I just think, I'm thinking to myself, I remember just as kind of like, we're starting the next official day, which we, I think we marked at 6 a.m. was the, the next official day for us. I just remember thinking like, I don't know, I, I, I could see people taking their foot off the gas a little bit right now. Cause we're gonna go back to two on, two off. You know, we're gonna go back to our normal ship mm-hmm. patterns. I'm thinking to myself, you know. If you even, couldn't get 80 with three dudes. How are you gonna do it yeah, with two? Yeah, maybe you'll just, on maybe, less rest. yeah, a little bit off their foot off the gas. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I gotta make sure I don't do that, you know, because now you're now we're getting feeling a little defeated. Like I don't think we've got it, you know. But I can tell you what I know for a fact that nobody did because on 
that second day we did 94 miles, Mm -hmm. which just, that's all that you needed to know is that we did 94 miles and and the third was 92. So like five knots, what is that? Like, yeah, it was, no, it wasn't, it wasn't quite five, but it was like, yeah, it was, so four knots will get you a hundred roughly. Okay. And so we were, we're like in the high threes all day long, making quick shift changes. Like everything was, and the thing is nobody was talking about the world record. You know, that's the thing It's like, no one was saying like, all right, where, where are we on the world record pace? Like it just became about like each other, you know, it just became, about cooking extra food for everybody. Hey, what does everybody want? I'm gonna cook five meals right now so that you've got some, I'm gonna put it right next to your seat, boom, eat it. I had this infected heel thing hurt so bad as it was, it was so infected, like even just barely touching it, like really, really like kind of sh- sent like a pain up my leg. And I'm notorious for not taking care of my body very well out there um, when I should. And Angus always yells at me for that and he, do little subtle things like, hey, Jay, just when you get back in the cabin, I laid it out. You don't have to do anything. The gauze is there, the wrap is there. All you need to do is just simply take off the thing, clean it, wrap mm-hmm. it and done. Like, you know, he would just, he was encouraging me to, to do what I needed to do to take care of my body. And that was what everybody was doing. Nobody was talking about themselves. Oh, I'm so tired guys, I'm so beat up. It was all about how are yeah. you doing? And that was to this day is the pinnacle of my athletic career that, that those five days. And I was, I, I honestly, no one's gonna believe this, but I didn't care anymore if we broke the world record. I didn't, we did, we ended up doing it. But in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, this is it. This is what, this is what I was trying so hard for. You know, I chased this like idea of the only time I'm gonna be accepted, I'm gonna accept myself or I'm gonna be accepted as an elite athlete, a winner is if, if it's a gold medal, if it's a world record. You start to realize like no one gives a shit. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter about that. What it matters is about is that when you step off that boat or when you cross that finish line, that, that you know that, that you led the team in the right way and that, that you gave everything that you had and they did as well because of all this stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's beautifully put. So then with that experience and breaking the world record and having this um, you know, extraordinary kind of camaraderie with your teammates. Like, what do you make of that? Like, how do you extrapolate upon that to, you know, communicate to the average person or somebody who's striving to achieve a goal or somebody who is a, a leader in their respective, you know, employment? I have a lot of thoughts around that, but I'll take it to its most basic level. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll say it by this, like we hear this, cliche all the time that life life is short, right? We always say life is short, life is short. I don't actually believe that life is short or at least I don't think we actually believe it. I mean, whether life is long or short, I guess just depends on what you compare it to. You know, If you compare it to a giant redwood, it's short, but if you compare it to like a fly, it's long, whatever it is. But what do we believe? And I think most people to include myself at times, we believe life is long. It's actually so long in fact that we put off these things, right? We always want to take piano lessons, but we'll do it next year when my life isn't as busy. You know, we do all these different things. I'm going to patch things up with my, you know, my mom or my dad. I haven't talked to in a while. I'll, I'll do it next week. I'll make the call next week, next month, whatever it is. And we put things off because we honestly believe we have more time. And the reality is, is that that is exactly what keeps us from doing these things. Is is that we always think we've got more time. And so, if I'm talking about at the most basic level when we start to attempt these things, we should honestly have a deep seated belief that life is finite, it's short and it's fleeting. And in which case we will start to act now. 
I think if we're talking about, we're starting to talk about talk to the individual out there that's, that's listening right now. I'd say that we need to start by how we think about time and how we think about how we spend our time. Because as we all know, weeks become months, become years, and all of a sudden, that's how we spend our lives. And um, I think uh, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm fearful that I'm not going to be able to get these things done because I'm running out of time and. That helps me, and and you know, and I, I think um, I hope that helps other people as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, it's amazing, um, dude. We haven't even talked about rowing the Pacific yet. <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> um, you're just a month out, basically, of doing the the craziest thing you've done to date. Um, so, so walk me through the process of of getting enthusiastic about this challenge, this idea that perhaps even after. Uh, setting this world record that you weren't done, that there was this other challenge out there that, that you wanted to tackle and putting the team together, like the audience is gonna kill me if I don't ask you like how you train for all this stuff. <laughs> um, so yeah, walk me up to this, to this you know, latest adventure and, and you know, everything that went into it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like I've gotten all these new tools and lessons. You keep using the metaphor that I'm, I'm basically getting a master's in leadership here. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I feel like, I feel like I just graduated after this Atlantic yeah. row with a master's and now I wanna go apply it. And that's really where the motivation from the Pacific came is I've, I've seen this idea of leveraging each other's human emotions to build this community, to build all this trust, all the things we've been talking about it. I've seen how it works. And now I wanna just go ahead and leverage the hell out of it because I think that this is going to be right. Like you find the lights have gone on. You yeah. finally got it, and now you could actually return and execute at the highest level because you've got the skills, the experience, the endurance. You've you've met the obstacles, all of it. Yeah, and that's what and that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. The Pacific is my backyard, and so what better thing to have a you know to enter the race that leaves from your backyard, you know, and goes to Hawaii. So, you know, so that's that's where the motivation comes from. Um, I'm excited to build a new team. Why a new team though? Why not just get all the, these guys? Yeah, you well, got your guys. And but those guys are they're, they're wise are changing. Living, <laughs> yeah, people are living their lives. <laughs> yeah, people are like, how yeah, dare they? Yeah, I, I thought that was selfish too. Uh-huh. I'm glad you think the same. Well, Matt, you know, I've never seen anyone have more closure um, than Matt. Matt uh-huh. after this row, and you know, the doc does it a, a great job of kind of of showing this, but but, but Matt has so much closure after this row, both athletically, his athletic career, but also his personal life. This idea of being able to really kind of close the loop on his, on a lot of the things, he has no interest. And believe me, mm-hmm. I tried, um, but he's, he's done. He's like, yeah. Jay, I'm done. I am done. He learned what he needed to learn. He's out. He got that closure. He had that experience and now he can cut the ties and build a new life. Yeah, exactly. On top of that. And that's exactly what he did. You know, they had another kid um, and they're living a happy life in, in Texas right now. So, but Angus. Well, Angus isn't going anywhere. Holler at my boy. Yeah. He's my dude. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the best. He's, um, you know, he, this is his life. And for him, you know, his motivation is different. Again, this is, this is for another time, but you know, he's, he's more comfortable. He's a guy who's always been more comfortable out at sea than he was indoors, you know? I mean, I like to come home. I, I love these things, but I also like to come home. You know, mm-hmm. for me, it's, I wanna see my wife. I wanna see my son. You know, I wanna, I wanna spend time with friends and family and, and, and go golfing and run my business. I wanna do these things. But Angus always seems like 
tough to re-enter, you know, like he always has a hard time coming back. And I think um, he's he's chasing something and that would be his, that's for him to answer, not me, but he was ready. So he, he was in, so it was me and him. And now we're looking for two other guys. And, um, you know, uh, one of his first teammates from the first time in the Atlantic, Gus Barton uh, was in and uh, he's a he's a personal trainer in London and a great athlete and has experience. And then Duncan Roy was our, our next guy who had rode the Atlantic twice already as well. And his big motivation was that he didn't really feel like he had the experience that he wanted to have in both those rows for mm-hmm. different reasons. He was looking for an ultimate team experience. And so we had this team, but COVID, you know, we're all sick of talking about COVID, but it precluded us from doing it in 2020, which is when we were supposed yeah. to do it. And so that comes and goes. And we now you sit here, we built ourselves up. Gus has to has to bow out because him and his wife are planning on growing their growing their family and having a child, which I totally understand. So he he can't be in for 2021. So we're looking for this fourth guy. Um and Duncan, we all put together a list of people that we'd be interested in and Duncan had a couple guys um, on his list, and one of those guys we ended up taking, which was which was Jordan Shuttleworth, and um, again, no experience on the ocean, so we're, we're talking about. You always need one guy who has no ocean experience. <laughs> we always want to make sure that we make it just a little yeah. bit harder for ourselves, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a, for, a former Royal Marine, big, strong, athletic individual, um, but no ocean rowing experience, and so you know, here we are. Here's our team coming into this year. Uh, myself, Angus. Who are, you know, who's at this point, my brother in adventure at this, you know, we've done so much together. And then Duncan, who I've never rode with in a boat before in terms of a race, but have now spent a lot of time with and just absolutely loved. And then, uh, then Jordan. Right, so I'm less familiar with Duncan and Jordan because they're not in the documentary mm-hmm. because the documentary ends before the Pacific row, um, but both military guys, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but also I trust come from some kind of competitive rowing background or just like ocean dudes? Duncan was ocean rowing. He'd done two ocean crossings already and mm-hmm. really has fallen in love with it. And, and Jordan, no, 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 like really no nautical background. Right, and this he's, was just a, a, he's just a badass Marine commando who's tough as nails. Yeah. And, and had never rowed in the ocean. And you're yeah. like, that's our guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Yeah, like yeah. I haven't learned my lesson. Well, it's uh, just, it, it was, we, we, you know, we interviewed quite a few people to include people that had ocean rowing experience, yeah. but he just seemed, he just, he had that. I'll tell you what I, what I loved about Jordan. I mean, there's a lot of things I love about Jordan, of course, um, especially now that we finished one together, we're like brothers. But the first thing he said when we got on our, our first interview with him, you know, it's Zoom, of course. And he says, I'm nervous. Why are you, what are you nervous about? He's like, I just want this so bad. Hmm. And I just thought, that is a great, I like that, you know, I, that he, there's already so much on it for him. And he, I asked him, I said, do you remember the first thing you said? And he couldn't remember. Hmm. And I just remember it came from the heart. He was just, he, he looked yeah. nervous and I just love that. It, it meant something to him. So. The interesting thing about Angus is, you know, I looked into his background a little bit, um, you know, in addition to being the youngest ever to row the Indian Atlantic and Pacific, um, the guy has dealt with depression and ADHD yeah. and some, you know, so he's got some dark chapters in his past that he had to kind of face and overcome. Yeah, and this has been, um, you know, 
something that we've constantly talked about. I mean, we, uh, you know, we rode the Atlantic together, broke the world record. Then a year later, we trekked across Namibia together. Um, mm-hmm. Something that we don't talk a lot about, but that was a, an incredible vaca- uh, vacation. I was about to say adventure. <laughs> Certainly wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was anything but. Right. Um, he didn't actually complete that one because he he got heat stroke and passed out and hit his head. Um, and then after that, he went into a, a, a tough time, and there was actually about a six month stint where I couldn't get a hold of him. Most of his friends couldn't get a hold of him. And I'm I'm in the U.S. and he's in the U.K., so I'd be calling him. And I had Alex, you know, my team, our teammate from the Atlantic, actually was trying so hard to get a hold of him, and he wouldn't respond to any of us. So Alex somehow had one of his old credit cards, started using it at the bars. He's like, "Well, if he's not going to answer my phone mm-hmm. calls, I'm just going to start charging the hell out of this thing until he calls me pissed off." But we, and as it turned out, which we learned is that he was just he, he had he was wrestling with a lot of tough thoughts and. And he's he's he struggled with depression. He's now in a much better situation. He's in a in a very healthy relationship with a wonderful woman. Um, and but it's not gone. You know, he mm-hmm. still has to deal with it. And so, um, it's again that's his story. But it's something that you know we've we have to constantly talk about because that's that's going to affect the mm-hmm. that's going to affect us being out there. Yeah, I saw. Uh, a piece, I think it was Vice that you did, um, where it was kind of like a mini doc and it was you guys like getting ready for this race. And it feels like in this case, you guys were together more or were those just training partners that live out near you? Those were my California? training partners. I, I wish those were my right. teammates. I mean, glad that my buddies helped out. But I mean, that's what happens is that, especially with COVID, we got together. I, I met Jordan face to face for the first time when he got to San Francisco. Oh, wow. Those, I've got, you know, San Francisco Bay, I've got, I've got, you know, training buddies, Mike Vuksich, who I rode with in college. He goes out in the water with me, you know, and I got Kevin Grant, who's a collegiate football player. So mm-hmm. I do the weights with him and I got swimming partners, trail running partners. Yeah. So those guys help me get in shape. I've got by committee, that's, that's great. But um, we, didn't, we didn't have any time to train together. Mm. So we, we get to San Francisco, we got two weeks until this row starts here. This is this past May. Boat's not ready and not nearly as ready as we'd like it to be. Um, we haven't even all really spent any time together. You know, COVID's slowing everything down because even at this point, we're still struggling with stuff and we're way, way over budget and underfunded. Right. So, I mean, this is the team that should so just So you be- as a guy who's taught at business schools and has all this wisdom about team, <laughs> team building and leadership, you're breaking all your rules. It's, it's yeah, and, and, I, and, and again, we gotta say, I could sit here and, and give you a litany of, of excuses. Hey, well, it's COVID this and COVID that. And in the end, it comes down to me. Uh-huh. In the end, it is my fault. So we're not ready. We're not prepared. We didn't raise enough money for this thing. We didn't get enough sponsorship. Well, whatever. This is my, I, I, I have this yeah. team and this boat and this race ahead of us. And those two weeks were not ideal to be fair. And as we led up to the, this row, so May we're, instead of, I was gonna take them to a Giants game and you know we were gonna go and do all these fun things, take them to the city. They wanted to see a cable car and all these, they didn't believe that it gets pulled by a cable. So mm-hmm. I was gonna do all this stuff. We spent every single day, all day at the boat, getting it ready until literally the night before. Mm. And so here we are, just like you said, we're, we're, I've broken all the rules, you know, but, but, in that time was spent with each other and it was stressful, but it was together and it, there was a ton of trust and community building happening. And I remember like the night before my wife asking me how I was feeling. Cause you know, it was a very stressful week, two weeks leading up. And I said, 
I can't wait till tomorrow morning. All I have to do is push off and all, all that's left is the suffering. And that's how I felt like, I, I truly felt that we were still where we needed to be. And all that was left is just, just do it. Mm. Just to bring it back to my my Vesper coach there, the three-time Olympic, he used to always say, medals are earned in the off season. You simply just row the race to go pick them up. And I love the simplicity of that. Like simply just row the 2000 meters because the medals are at the finish mm-hmm. line. You just gotta go pick them up. Whatever color you get is a result of what you did in the off season. Yeah. And that's how I felt with this team. Like we had done the work. Um, it was stressful, but we, we were ready. The boat was where it needs to be. The team together where they need to be. All we needed to push off. Yeah, we did. Talk to me about the training. So you would think, I thought, I guess I should say that your training would be you on a boat in the bay as much as possible, then you on a compu trainer and then you in the weight room. But in that little mini doc that I watched, you were doing all kinds of interesting different stuff. A lot of kettlebell work, a lot of like calisthenic type, you know, hit type training where you're changing gears a lot, trying to confuse the body. Mm -hmm. So walk me through, you know, the kind of philosophy and perspective and and routine that you um, were doing to get ready. Yeah, so ideally the number one thing you could do to get yourself ready is to be in your boat with your team on the ocean rowing every day. As much as possible. Yeah, Yeah. that's number one. Whenever you can do that, you do it. You know, multi-day rows, getting out there, sleeping on the boat, rowing in different conditions. That's the best, but that just doesn't happen. I mean, even even on a non-COVID year, it's hard to get the team together. But when we can, we do. Then you get down to rowing machine. So the erg, I mean, I'll sit on there and I do a lot of different training. Sometimes there'll be long, long steady state pieces on that where I'm just trying to keep my heart rate. Mm-hmm. And I do all heart rate training. So it's really based on where the heart rate is, not where the split is. Then we'll do interval, interval work and strength work on the rowing machine. And then from there, lifting is a big deal. Rowing is a leg sport mostly. Most people think it's an upper body. It's mm-hmm. not, it's that you push off of a sliding seat. You don't pull, pushing is most of it. So you're building that legs, you're building the core and of course the back and shoulders as well. So a lot of, of that, but then, you know, you can't be too singular and just row. It's a lot of, lot of pressure on the back. So I do a lot of cross training. And for me, cross training is, um, I like to do trail running cause I enjoy it and I'm not, and it's hard for me mm-hmm. cause I'm a big guy. And swimming, swimming has become a huge part of my my training now because it's that nice fluid motion and um, I can, it's a lengthening thing for me. Mm-hmm. So it makes my back feel good. So I'm doing a combination of all that, but in a day to day, I'm getting up at 4.30. If this is what people wanna know, I'm getting up at 4.30 before my son and my wife are up. I'm, I'm doing a, a big row there. That's, a, that's an erg row, that's a rowing machine workout. That'll be a two hour session, depending on what the day looks like. And then um, I'm usually doing some kind of a midday afternoon thing that'll be either uh, in the weight room or be some kind of like park workout um, that we'll just bring all our medicine balls and stuff and we'll start to do stuff in the park. Mm-hmm. And that'll be kind of more of a muscular endurance type of workout. And then usually um, on certain days, usually three days a week after I put my son to bed, he's down at 7.30, then I'll go for a night run, just something light, not pushing it, nothing like you do, Rich, but just getting out there, just trying to like break a sweat and make it feel, make it feel good. And then uh, that's, so I'm doing two days, Monday through Saturday, and then two or three of those days, I'll put in a light run as well in the evenings and then mm-hmm. Sunday, I'll usually take off. Right, so what I didn't hear is you getting out on the water. Well, usually we get to, but this time yeah. in the Pacific, there was almost no water time. First of all, our boat wasn't ready. Um, but even getting out in a skull. Yeah, and I did, I did a lot of that uh-huh. as well, but you know, um, it's tough, you know, it's tough with, um, 
with a family. Yeah, it's so time consuming. It's time you consuming. You gotta get, you gotta get to the water. There and yep. unload it. And exactly. So it's like, right. do I do that or do I get on the rowing machine, which mm-hmm. is in my garage, yeah. you know? And I got a little setup there, and I can just get there and pound. And you out. have the background and the experience, like. Yeah, I wasn't as worried about the, for me, as the, the rowing portion of it in terms of the feel of the oars, you know, that I've spent a lot of my, mm-hmm. you know, adulthood dealing with and training for. So it was, for me, it's just about sitting and getting bigger and stronger yeah, and fitter. Packing on the weight, yeah, for putting me on big. the muscle mass because that's gonna get eroded over time and yep. kind of becomes a fuel. Yeah, I mean, what happens level, is you, yeah. start, you start high, the adrenaline, then you crash with the seasickness. And then after you get out of the seasickness, because you, you come back up and you're probably at your highest point at that point, you feel the best, maybe five days into the row. And then it's a slow sl- descent, mm-hmm. slow and steady descent as you lose the fat, which goes away quick. Then start you start burning into that muscle mass, mm-hmm. and you start feeling those injuries. You get the stress fractured ribs. You got sores on your ass. You've got your hands. You've How got do you get on top of those sores? Because that's just nuts. And all they're just being exposed to. They're just wet all the time. Salt, everything. It's like, awful. I'm gonna be honest. It is the worst. So for that, you know, you hear that that old proverb that says it's not the mountain in front of you, but the pebble in your shoe. That's what ocean rowing is. It's not the distance mm-hmm. that you're rowing that's so hard. It's the little things, and that's getting ahead of it real quick. So, you know, yeah, you, the minute you get start getting wet, you, know, you get hit by a wave. I mean, you might not be dry for another two days from that one single wave that hits you. And you're soaking wet, and then it gets in down to your butt, and so the salt is just grinding into your butt. And then you get these sores and it's a combination of trying to dry them out, but also keeping them so that they, you know, keeping them also like with some, some mm-hmm. lubricant basically so that they don't get worse. So it's this fine balance between drying them out and you're on a 30 foot boat. Where are you yeah. drying? You know, there's no, we don't have a bathroom on I mean, do you just have vats of antimicrobial like neosporin type yep, shit? Yeah, doing that, that kind of stuff. on your ass and on your feet Yep, your just like trying, you got your phone trying to take a selfie to see where it is or just asking mm-hmm. one of your buddies, dude, I need you to look at my ass. Yeah. I was like, oh God. And no, I no. saw on the Instagram, like sleeping naked because you gotta- You're you gotta, trying to air you out. You gotta dry it out. Yeah, yeah, you just, <laughs> so you just, yeah. I mean, there's no shame on this boat. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> you can use your imagination, but I mean, you're asking guys to look at things that you can't see on your body. I need you to check this thing out, you know, and then. Or a guy will see you like, you know, take down, drop down your shorts, but like, dude, your ass looks awful, yeah. dude. You got to fix that. You I know, mean, so just as a cyclist, like, I can't imagine the saddle sore situation. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's for me, it's one of the worst things. So I, I had that, and like, I had a bad ankle issue on this one that just, and it's just those little things that you're just trying to mm-hmm. figure out. You've got two hours to somehow make it better before you go out for another two hours and make it Aggravated worse. Again. Yeah, so it's yeah. just this this idea of like trying to figure that out. And then of course you're tired. All you really wanna do is just lie down and go to sleep, but you've gotta stay up and fix those things. Mm-hmm. And that can be, that's one of those two hours of not rowing is tough. So yeah, you've got stress fractured ribs, you've got salt sores on your ass, you've got tendinitis where your hands don't even straighten out and you um, you got numbness in your hands. You've got you know blisters obviously that hopefully will callous up. Um, and then, you know, you're just getting, you know, you, you, get, you get headaches, you get dizziness. It's just, it's just, it's brutal out there. And how much clean water can the desalinator produce daily? It really depends on how much sunlight you're getting because you're, you know, everything's being powered by solar panels mm-hmm. and how much you've had to use for other things. But we tr- keep those phones charged. <laughs> Get yeah. those videos. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you got an auto an auto helm that's helping you keep your your 
your point and stuff like that. Your but so is solar creating the energy for your navigation for everything? Everything, everything. Right? yeah. It's all it's all being. We got lithium ion batteries on on this race, which is the first time we did, which end up being great. Um, but I would I like having five liters of water per twenty four hours for each individual is good. That's mm-hmm. nice. And think about it, it's not that much water. That's not that much. Plus yeah. you're using it also to make you your food. You can't like use that for taking a shower. Yeah, it's not like we're just, having, we're not having body. water balloon yeah. fights out on the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, that's the precious resource. And a couple times, I think we did it three times on this last race, you, you need to wash the bottom of the boat. Actually, if you can believe it, barnacles build up on the bottom of the boat. Right. You get a slime that gets there and then the barnacles stick to the slime. This is another interesting thing. You're in the middle of the ocean. You jump in, and you just you're you're swimming in the middle of the ocean. It's an incredible experience that I always encourage all my teammates if they haven't done it before. It, you, some don't want it. Like hell, no, I'm not going uh-huh. in there. But I always encourage if if you're not too scared to, to do it, and most people take you up on it. It's just an incredible feeling, like you know, tethered to the boat, but like you're just away from the boat. You're you know, it's obviously gonna be in calm weather. You're not gonna do it during a storm. Uh-huh. And just to naked. go underwater naked, and yeah. it feels so good. Yeah, so you're getting that kind. Of, that's your closest thing to a shower. Just a, I mean, that's a religious experience. It is an unbelievably religious. It is so true. I mean, it is one of the most amazing things to know. You have thirty thousand feet below you. I love to just. I do it every time. I just like push off and just swim down, uh-huh. and then just like do a three sixty underwater and just as far as the eye can see. And, and the light's being funneled because it's so deep, and you can just see it being squished in. It's amazing. I mean, as an adventure athlete, as an explorer. There's this, I mean, perhaps you're the only human being that's ever been in that, that spot one ever spot. in the history oh, of that. humanity. Yeah, I think that all right? the time. Like, it's, it's so crazy. That's what we're all, that's what adventures are trying to do. Has uh-huh. my, has anyone other human's foot ever been where I'm standing on this terra firma? And that's what we think about out there is you just, for a second, just have your own experience. Just the guys are joking around, mm-hmm. you know, and, and everyone's, and some guys are working scrubbing the boat and stuff like that. And you can just have this one moment to yourself where you're like, and I always think like, I'm exactly where I need to be right now. And that is, again, if we're gonna wrap this whole thing up, this is why we're doing it. I mean, we're doing things like this to satiate this very human need to push further, to be somewhere that no one else has been to, to get away and to be present. And there is nothing more to feel, to make you feel present than something like that yeah. experience. Yeah. So you get it done, you, uh not only break the world record, you like demolish it by nine days, basically. Yeah. From 39 days to 30, 30. days. Yeah. It's insane. We, so yeah. the thing that you always were waiting for, this guy who was, you know, kind of in the shadows, always second place, never could quite, you know, execute on the dream. I mean, that's gotta be pretty gratifying. Yeah. It's you know, I'm I'm on the path to where I, I want to be doing it the way that I want to do it. And um, but I'm not done, you know? And I think right now it's about, as I said before, taking this relatively new knowledge, this master's degree, which I'm gonna use by the way, because this mm-hmm. is amazing. This is a great metaphor. Yeah, but now you're, 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 you're teetering into PhD territory, but <laughs> Thank there's you. a dissertation involved. So <laughs> yeah. maybe that's what you're thinking about in terms of what's next. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, I, I just love to see these tools going into action and, and them actually working. You know, it's just an amazing thing to see all this work that we've we've done and you just see you create an environment for these human beings to be amazing and then they mm-hmm. are and you just you sit there and you marvel at it because in the end what I'm doing is I'm not proving to the world that I'm just some great athlete. You know, I'm as 
great as I can be, but I'm proving to the world that I'm a builder of teams. And that is why you'll, no matter what you see me do next, it'll be in a team, mm-hmm. team atmosphere. Do you have a sense of what might be coming next? I definitely have a short list. Um, yeah, I, you're, you're I, gonna I, get all cagey on me now. Well, well, you. come on. You know what if someone well, does just it you and me. me? Yeah, come <laughs> yeah, on. That's right. No one listens to your podcast. I forgot about that. Um, I'll I'll just say this. I'll say this. I think I'm largely done with oceans. I think I've. I don't think there's anything left for me out there. Um, I mean, I, I I would do I would do some some more interesting, maybe shorter crossings. But I think transatlantic, trans-Pacific ocean crossing is. I'm done with that, but. Mm-hmm. I've been looking to other bodies of water, big rivers, the world's biggest rivers and doing some of those and being able to do some more exploring, some more adventuring where, yeah, there's still a record to be had, a source to see type of, um, you know, going down rivers and stuff, but also being able to explore terra firma at times, being able to come onto land, um, just seeing a little bit more of, of the world through, through rivers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying more than that for now. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I'm interested in, in kind of how your recent experience has or has not maybe impacted how you think about your why for yourself as an adventure athlete who now has you know made this stamp, established yourself as somebody who can do amazing things, who is in a position to garner additional support and you know attention, et cetera. And I think of people you know in the tradition of this, like. Lewis Pugh, who's like about to jump in freezing cold water and you know swim across these frigid, you know, Icelandic or where is he? He's in Greenland. I'm yeah, sorry, which is even um, worse. You know, swimming in swimming in the coldest water there is, but his why is tied to a cause greater than himself. I mean, you're about team building and leadership and community building, et cetera. Not that that's not you know completely laudable, but his thing being like you know the environment and all of that. So I'm interested in kind of has your perspective on what you, the like the sort of larger why behind what you're doing, is that, you know, in flux? Are you locked in on that? Or how do you think about that? I think that it's very inelegantly. No, said, no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I think about this stuff so much. So I'm, I'm, while you were talking so elegantly, by the way, I was, you know, also trying to Think about how I, how I kind of wrestle with that idea, and I'd say the first thing is is that some of this is set in stone, and it's becoming more and more stronger with me, my why, and that's a lot of the personal why. Um, things like doing this for my son, you know, uh, you know, I have a, he'll be two in a week, and you know, he doesn't know what I do mm-hmm. yet; he's only two, but he will start to in the next few years start to slowly realize that his dad has done some. Some incredible things, and you know, it might sound a little cheesy, but for those parents out there, you know that that your why becomes pretty strong for your for your kids, and it's for him to be able to see that his dad does these things. Um, so whatever he gets into, that he's going to know that you know he's got a chance, he's got mm-hmm. a shot, and that's just I'm so excited to be able to use that um, as kind of a, a leverage for him as well, and and uh, I'm excited. I'm that that. This was my first row I've ever done. My first adventure with him alive. Yeah. That was that was tough, but also uh, a motivator. You know, I put him to bed the night before I left, and he woke up the next day, and I wasn't mm-hmm. there. And then I wasn't there for the next thirty days. Did that change your uh, kind of risk analysis approach? I thought it would, but it didn't. And to be very honest, mm-hmm. and that sounds selfish, and it is, but I didn't. 
I didn't feel myself feeling any more mortal out there than I than I have in the past just because I have a a boy. Um, I thought it would. I thought mm-hmm. maybe I'd lose a little edge, but I didn't. In fact, mm-hmm. one of my teammates on this was he said he was worried, and it was very honest of him to say that. It's actually Jordan. Very very awesome to say that. You know, he's a little worried that maybe I would bring that missing him out on, onto the water, and I had spent you know, the year leading up to this road to make sure that I was emotionally ready to leave him. And I think it did me well, you know, I didn't die. I didn't bring it in a sense that I made decisions or I had bad days because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was surprised that I, you know, I, I still felt as, as ready to take risks and, and take chances. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Um, maybe that will change. I don't know, maybe it will. Yeah, I mean, I, it, you know, as somebody who's got kids that are older now, you know, I'm aware of how that impacts, like how I make decisions about where I invest my time. That's risk, true. risk analysis aside, um, I, I think as they get older and they become, like, at some point they're like, "Oh, you're a real person." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Because they develop enough, you know, yeah. their brains, you know, mature a little bit and their personality comes out a little bit more robustly. And for me, like when they're when they're really young, it's harder to have that kind of. Uh, not connection, but like understanding of yeah. them as like sentient human beings. And then when they get to a certain point, you're like, oh, wow. And I just remember a shift in hmm. how I thought about things. When so, was that? Can't remember. I mean, I'm old, so it was a long time ago, but <laughs> I think maybe around, I think you got maybe another year and a half or so oh. before that starts to percolate up. That'll be interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's already there, Yeah. but then it really kind of like gets to a different level. Yeah, and it changes the way that you kind of interrelate. Yeah, I mean, I, I would fully expect to for it to change, and I'm am surprised. I'm being that's very honest. Like it would have been easy for me to just sit here and say, "Oh yeah, you know, family first. and it is family yeah. first. But when I was out there, I mean, we took some risks. We went through storms when we could have gone around them. That's by the way why we broke that nine days. We went mm-hmm. through every single storm. We did not go around it. That was dangerous. It was harder and beat us up more. And I never once thought like we shouldn't be doing this because our team goal was to go as fast as possible. And that's that was how you did it. But I, I can see what you're saying is that he's gonna start asking me questions. Like mm-hmm. if 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 my, you know, aunt twice removed says, Why do you keep doing these things or something? I'm, not, I'm pulling this is mm-hmm. a fictional person at this point. But I get those questions. Like, why do you have to do another one? I don't I don't hear that. But if my son asked me that, that would be a, that would hit a lot harder, mm, <laughs> I yeah, think. Yeah. But meanwhile, you've got this consultancy, this other business that you're running, uh, Latitude 35. Um, so maybe a way that we can kind of uh, round this out and, and, and conclude the conversation with, is with some thoughts about leadership and team building that you've learned as a result of working with corporations and you know, teaching what you've learned to business schools. A big piece in this that I think distinguishes your approach from other people who do similar type stuff is that my sense is that it's extremely experience-based yeah. and it's really all about kind of the emotional piece that we were talking about earlier. It's one thing to come in, stand on a stage and go, here are the 10 things you need to do to reorganize your team and motivate them. But truly all of that remains academic until you get a group of people out, you make them do something hard together and have a sort of transformative experience that congeals them and weds them to each other in a way that you know, information on its own just isn't going to accomplish. Yep, that's what our company's 
essentially been all about is that, you know, you hear you know, the other competing companies that studies show this about leadership and building teams and surveys show that, but largely the people that are teaching this stuff from my experience have stood on the sidelines of, of building teams or even been part of teams their whole life. You know, they, they, they've studied them, you know, and they've, they've read the books and they've may, maybe even written some books on it, but, but they have not been out there and tested that. And when I, um, you know, when I started to, you know, it's, I've been doing this for over 15 years now, started teaching uh, leadership and how to build high performance teams. Yeah, I have my own process, you know, we, we, have, we have our steps and whatever you wanna call it, but it constantly changes. So every time that we add another, add another row or another adventure, I'm constantly tweaking it because in the end, it's just a living document. There's no, there's no right way to build teams. It's not the process, it's a process. Mm-hmm. But the most important element is that we're, I'm going out there, I'm building teams for different adventures. I'm um, using my process best I can, but I'm making mistakes. I'm making concessions that I'm telling people you shouldn't make. I'm making mistakes out there constantly, learning from them, and I'm bringing all that experience to our clients. And you know, they've got they come with me, you know, with their with their business challenges, and I'm going to help consult them. But we also do our 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 most popular programs are our experiential programs where we take people rowing on mm-hmm. on a river or sailing the British Virgin Islands. And we, we say, all right, we are gonna teach this by essentially putting together a team just like I had to do and putting you out on a, in a chaotic, a controlled chaotic uh-huh. environment. Debbie from marketing and yeah, like Joe yeah. from sales. Yeah, well, you know, we, when we work with a lot of, you know, upper management and above, it's, it's you know, uh, but these are people that are either maybe at the lowest level of, coming into for the first time leadership responsibilities. Maybe they've never really managed people all the way up to people that have been managing people for a long time, but mm-hmm. are doing it a certain way, their way, and maybe just need access to different perspectives. And all we're doing is creating an environment for those those ideas and those experiences to happen. Mm-hmm. And we don't sit there and placate them and say, look how you rode well together and worked as a team. We actually dig, we're very academic. So half that experience is, or that time with them is spent in that experience. But the other half is a very academic deconstruction of that experience, because that's essentially what I'm doing when I debrief my own adventures is how can I, what mistakes did I make? How can I learn from those mistakes and move forward? And you know, that's, that's essentially mm-hmm. what we're doing. We're constantly being students. I mean, you're, you're saying I'm almost at my PhD, which I appreciate, but I'm gonna try to go for another one. Yeah. And okay, <laughs> since you're gonna go for another one, uh, how do you think about communicating principles around things like discipline, consistency, motivation, inspiration, you know, living your life purposeful and you know, seeking your passion and terms that get thrown a lot around a lot kind of in the space of what you do. And I'm sure, you know, in the kind of keynote circuit speaker world, I think it's very confusing for a lot of people because those words are used cavalierly. So what do they mean to you? And where do you think people should focus their energies who are trying to kind of unlock something greater within themselves, but feel stymied or stuck or just unsure about how to bring expression to that? I think, you know, yeah, and I do a fair note of keynote speeches and it's hard to connect with people on, on, on keynotes. You know, you're on, you're on a stage and you're, you're, you're either telling a story or you're, you're giving some examples and some anecdotes, but largely the, the best work that I have with people on those is afterwards when you're, you're having dinner with them or you're, you're talking off stage with them. And then of our programs where we get to spend a little bit more time making some connections. And I think the first thing is like, is there a willingness to change? And I think for a lot of people, 
you know, um, a willingness to to be a better leader or a, a better builder of teams comes from the idea that you're you're okay with kind of exposing yourself and opening up your books to everybody else. Because I used to play with all these different definitions of leadership, you know, and I thought, well, I'm in leadership, so I have to have this really complex definition. And now it's just one word; it's just trust. That's my definition. So, mm-hmm. what's the definition of leadership? I say it's trust. In order to build trust with the people that you're leading and for them to build trust within themselves. Like you have to open up your books and, and, and Honesty, be vulnerable. Vulnerability. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, I think one of the hardest things for us to do, even though we talk about a lot and talk about a cliche is, you know, talking about our failures. And so I spent a lot of time showing how much we can learn from our failures. And I think we just spent a lot of time doing that just now mm-hmm. on this, on this talk. And, you know, we here's another cliche that drives me nuts is that one where you hear it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. And I find that to be um, a very unproductive cliche or at least um, incomplete at, at the very least. And the, the the reality is these days, nobody gives a shit how many times you get back up. Like it's just too much talent in this world. Um, um, there's so much competition. People are smart, people are, People are getting smarter, faster. They, they, they wanna learn more. And I think we need to spend more time understanding how we got knocked down, talking about it, being vulnerable, being authentic with ourselves and with each other so that when we do get back up, we're a tougher, you know, harder, stronger, smarter target to knock down again, because, um, we need to be resilient. You know, this resiliency piece is, is so important, but if all we're doing is proving to people that we'll get back up, I mean, we're really not getting, we're not getting any anywhere with that. So, you know, if people are looking how to like really be be authentic leaders and how, how to kind of take on some of these challenges, I think it starts with this building the trust piece. And I think you can spend a lot of time working on that. Mm. So how would you begin that? I think a lot of people, and the reason I ask that yeah. is, I think that I agree with you completely on the vulnerability piece. Like you cannot expect to engender trust if you're not willing to open up your books, to use your phraseology, to be honest, to admit where you went wrong. I think a lot of people are intimidated to do that or scared to do that. It feels not safe or it feels the kind of conventional wisdom around that would be if I do, if I do that, I'll appear weak and that will be at cross purposes with the trust that I'm trying to engender. The truth is actually the opposite, but for somebody who's never engaged in that process, like I guess you would have to say like start small, but getting somebody off that ledge and into a mindset where they're comfortable sharing on that level with people who are underneath them or their colleagues at work or even at home in their relationships, I think is a tough road to hoe for many, many people. Yeah. And it keeps us stuck. And it also imprisons us in our you know, emotional states. It, it, it paralyzes us from the growth that we actually seek and aspire to. Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the things I've noticed about myself is the more I've accomplished and the more of these you know, of these rows, the less macho I become. You know, I, I feel that at first you feel the need, like you're mm-hmm. saying to kind of beat your chest and to say, look at me, I'm on this pedestal. And the reason why you're down there and I'm up here is because I manage you, I lead you, I'm your boss. And then it starts to become such a flat hierarchical structure by the time you start to accomplish these things, you all start to start to become on the same level. And I think I've learned that a lot. I felt so, 
I felt so much the need like at Sonoma State to show that I am bigger and stronger and you should be scared of me. And one time one of my teammates says, the only, re- the only reason people row hard for you is because they're scared of you, not because they respect you. And that really hit me hard. And so I've been thinking about that. Which works in the short term, but not in the long term. Exactly, yeah, it's the stick versus the carrot thing. So if people are looking for a way to start, as you said, a jumping off point, I start with storytelling. Start figuring out what kind of stories you can be telling. Don't forget about showing your failings for a second or you know, deciding to say, oh, this, I'm, I'm gonna tell them this is where I failed. You know, this is gonna be a big thing. Forget about that. Just start, start storytelling, start a narrative. Every time I'm telling a story, giving a keynote speech, even, even if it's just with friends at a dinner or if it's on a stage in front of thousands of people, I make sure that every sentence I'm saying is for the benefit of the person listening. Otherwise you're just bloviating and talking Mm -hmm. about something about yourself. But if you can have other people see themselves in the stories that you tell, you're on the road to starting those conversations that are gonna talk about the shortcomings. And that's a way to wade in shallow because you're not, I'm not saying you to say, this is where I made a mistake. You're just telling a story. And that encourages people to be like, I I think of this one time, you know, you've given a fair fair amount of keynotes as well, but, you talk to people off stage and they wanna come in and shake your hand and, 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 and share stuff with you. And I've never really identified or connected with the, the macho guys that come up to me and say, oh, I'm just like you, I you know, I hate losing. I never, I never lose, which I'm, first of all, I lose all the time. So I, I don't identify with that, but I just feel like they, they missed the whole point. But one that happened a few years ago that, that always stuck with me and I'll, I'll never remember what her name was. And I can picture her though. And she wanted to share a story of her and her twin sister they were they had stopped talking for years and years and um, moved away from each other and they finally got reconnected and put their past away and they decided they're gonna have do a century bike ride together and they and she told me the story she goes it's not the anxious starts it's nothing like what you did but I the whole time that you were talking I just kept thinking about what my sister and I did and we did it and it started raining and we had to get off our bikes and walk and it took us forever but we finished it and she and at the end she said like I don't even know why I'm telling you this right now. I just felt like I wanted to say that. I said, that she, somewhere she's out there and she doesn't realize that this is affecting me this much because that's successful. I told a story that encouraged someone to think about their stories and then share their stories. And all of a sudden we're, we're a bunch of people sharing stories and that then the vulnerabilities will come out. But let's start with, let's start with storytelling. Well, thanks for sharing your story with me today, man. Oh, my pleasure, yeah, Rich, thank great. you so much. Um, How's your dad? Is he good? He's good. He's good with you now? Oh yeah. Um, right. In fact, we're closer than ever. I, I only feel comfortable <laughs> saying this in front of the couple of people that listen to your podcast because uh-huh. we are so close. In fact, we have a standing appointment to golf on Mondays together. Um, and uh, and also, you know, he's even doing a little work with me now because he's kind of semi-retired. So he's yeah. even starting to work at lot 35, doing some stuff for me. So we're good. Good, man. You Glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, that's awesome, man. Thanks. Uh, very cool. That's super inspiring what you shared today, everything that you're about, I'm super into. Um, There's so much to be learned from these experiences. And I think the more that you're able to share them and do it from that place of humility and vulnerability, you become this transformative spark for so many people. So wind in your sails. And if there's anything I can do to support you, I'm, I'm, I'm here to do that. And I can't wait to see what you're gonna do next, man. Thanks, Rachel. I cool. appreciate it. So, uh, last thing, the the documentary Chasing. Um, I got to see a final cut of it, but um, what's the plan in terms of like it getting released? Like, where are we in terms? Because we talked a lot about it today. People are yeah, gonna be like, I where know, do I see I know. it? So, well, the thing is, is it's so 
Evan Hayes and Ace Productions over there, they have it out to market. They've had it mm. out to market for a few months now. They've gotten some good interest on it from a couple of big platforms as well as um, distribution uh, distributors. I mean, like I'm, I'm waiting any day for them to say like they're gone. And in fact, some of the meetings I'm going to tomorrow are a way to help nudge some of these platforms uh -huh. over. So I'm hoping that'll work, but he swears it'll get, you know, it's gonna get sold. He's never not sold this thing, but it should end up on one of the majors, but I've been cool. waiting forever. Yeah, so so basically just for those of you who are watching or listening, it's not out yet. As yeah. soon as it's out, I'll let everybody know. If you do strike a deal in the interim between us recording this and when it goes up, I'll amend it and let everybody know in the show notes where they can find it. But in the meantime, uh, it's a TBD situation. Yeah. And if people wanna connect with you and follow your journey and all of that, where's the best place to direct them? Uh, Instagram's a great place for, for you to go. Um, I handle it, uh, Jason underscore T underscore Caldwell. Um, follow me there, I try to post pretty regularly. Um, and then, you know, also on LinkedIn for any of the that wanna connect on a professional mm -hmm. level is a great way to find me. And I'm always kind of posting my thoughts and articles on there as well. Cool, and there's a lat 35 Instagram as well. Right. There is, is it, yeah, at, and yeah, at lat thirty five. Yeah, at, uh, at lat thirty five, uh -huh. um, and especially when we're about to do our next adventure, we we have someone that does a great job keeping up with that. So yeah, cool. All right, man. Thanks for talking to me again. Thanks, Rich. See you again soon. Bye. All right. All right. Peace. Bye. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.